ticketed me. I don't know. What, I, I pushed the wrong button at the wrong moment. And here we are. You're already pushing my buttons. The last thing he said to me was, I will unmute you, my friend. Isn't yeah. that true, Mr. Real? Weren't, the, weren't those the last words you said to me? Well, before these words, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm talking, and nobody can hear me because you haven't unmuted me. I, anyway. Well, how are you tonight, by the way? I'm just great. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> this is what a great start to a, a fantastic show. You know? Yeah, I'm it's super excited. Go ahead. Well, I was saying I'm super excited. I may have to step away for a minute. My wife got a new puppy this week. I'm, I'm. He's in the crate for the moment. Anybody who you know knows puppies knows this will be a little iffy. But after about an hour, I'm going to probably sneak away, let him outside really quick, let him do his business, and then I'll bring him back in and I'll rejoin you. But I hope that'll be okay. I think I'll avoid asking uncomfortable questions at this point. Please, I yeah, please do. <laughs> if your dog's running around, your puppy, you got to hold him up and show him to the audience. I don't. He's in his crate in the living room, but he's a little brown toy poodle named Teddy. Teddy is, we're having a lot of fun with Teddy. Teddy's really enjoying us. We're enjoying him. Um, but we'll see what happens once he really gets to know how to use those teeth. Yeah, absolutely. I thought maybe you were going to name him Yugi. Yeah, no, no. Just because every time I go, oh, like Yu-Gi-Oh, oh. Like that. <laughs> no, that's Jonathan Strader's dog. Anyway, got to recognize that it is the 60th anniversary of the assassination of um, John F. Kennedy. To the today, front November. and to the left. I'm sorry, what? John F. Kennedy, when he was shot, the way you know it was Oswald up in the building is it was down and to the left was when he got the shot. You've, you've seen the Seinfeld episode. Well, yeah, I know that. I know the um, the, the making fun of the magic bullet. <laughs> yes, that's uh, anyway. Okay, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. We're getting off to really uh, just a fantastic start on tonight's show. It's not like I haven't put any work into this. This is my show tonight. Okay, <laughs> it is. and the title it's November twenty second. It is two thousand and twenty three, and the title of the show is Welcome to the Morning. Apocalypse. <laughs> How was that? That was pretty good. I could almost envision Satan. Um, that seemed like an upgrade, maybe over the temple guy who you know held the. If they don't live up to their covenants on this day, and he was you're a lot your more hand, like your Bella Lugosi. You've got the arm over your hat, your face. He, he took like the his cape, which you know was part of his priesthood or something, and he yeah took that, the Michael Balaam stick. Yeah, you got Every it. time we got to that part, I went, ooh, what a ham. Yeah, and as he broke that stick and walked away. <laughs> and sometimes I thought, I said, did I think that or did I say that? He and is. Sometimes I actually said it in the middle of the endowment. Good looking Lucifer. It is. Yes, it is. Welcome to the Mormon apocalypse tonight. Because thumbnail sketch of tonight's show is that we are starting to hear in the news strange stories about Mormons doing strange things involving the apocalypse, getting out of town, heading up to points north such as Idaho. That's a favorite, right? Mm -hmm. And even sometimes further than that, excuse me. And what I wanted to do, instead of just seeing that it's going on and saying, wow, a lot of this seems to be going on, was to find out what's causing it. What is it that's going on in the background that's leading these people to act, act so strangely, at least from our point of view? Obviously, from their point of view, they're acting completely rationally, uh, but we can get behind it. And then if you know people who are of this uh, mindset, 
then maybe you can know what it is that's driving it. And perhaps you can have a basis to have some kind of a conversation on the subject. Yeah. And I think this will be interesting. I think that uh, my time in Mormonism in the nineties, I was telling you on the phone, your time in Mormonism in the eighties and nineties, uh, I, I think this will very much ring familiar to folks who spent a lot of time kind of studying the second coming. I told you about the book I had behold, I come quickly or behold, he cometh quickly. And, um, this really will remind, this will remind, as I prepared for this. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can see, because I see Maven laughing down there. Yeah. And when you said, behold, I come quickly, of course, I had to say, I almost said, that's what my second wife said. <laughs> that's what Maven, that's what Maven is. Oh. Cool. That's what Maven is laughing at, is the title of the book. And the fact that you then modified it to something you knew it wasn't in order to avoid that. <laughs> you said, behold, I come quickly. And he said, or behold, he comes quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if that helps. As as I was preparing for tonight's conversation, <laughs> it reminded me very much of the Mormonism that I had early on in my time in the church. Yes. Okay, very good. And you avoided entirely mentioning the name of that book again. Bravo. So, yes. so strange things in the news. We want to talk a little bit about it. First off, um, let me just check my uh, my outline since I'm so excited about what's going on. I'm getting distracted here. Is um, just from really this past week when an in individual uh posted um i don't know if i'm going to mention his name here uh but he had posted a a video that ended up getting a lot of views and um he was talking about how he well his name was um todd todd chella is what it is that's right todd chella i don't think there's any point in you know not mentioning his name when it's totally out there and we're going to be looking at a video by his brother tim chella here in a second uh, but the, the video by Todd is talking about how he's been called as a prophet of God, and he's saying that the, the, the destruction that God's going to put on the earth, and especially on the Wasatch Front, and especially on Salt Lake City, is now. It's going to happen in the next month. It's going to happen in the next two months. And he's getting out of Dodge, by which I mean Salt Lake City. He's heading north, and he's uh, advocating that everybody else get out of there too, because that's going to be destruction central, real wrath of God stuff in downtown Salt Lake City. And so his brother has control over the channel. He took it down, but they're still looking for him. They're very concerned about him and they're trying to find him. And I wanted to, oh, do we have a picture of him? Did I send a picture of him to you? If I didn't, I apologize, but uh, I'll do that in a Radio Free Mormon uh, to put a picture up so people can know what it is that Todd Chella looks like. So if they should see him, they could contact law enforcement. I can't advocate that anybody who sees him goes up and makes personal contact because of some of the things he said in his video, including keeping a loaded gun on his nightstand. So I think that if you see him, I wouldn't advise you to approach him yourself, but I would certainly advise you to call uh, 911 and report this because I understand the police are involved as well in trying to locate him and uh, help him out. So, uh, but here is the video that his brother put up. His brother took down the other video, put up a 57 second long, I think it was, uh, privacy to the family about this situation. And um, maybe he puts up a, a picture of him there. Here, that's this is the brother. This is Tim Chella, Todd's brother. He's talking about Todd, but this is Tim. And I can't hear it now. 
Sorry. We love you and we miss you. And we wish you'd come home as soon as possible. You're not in a good place right now. You need help. We need to get you help as soon as possible. We need you back. To everyone else who has been watching these videos, we do request our family's privacy. I'm not here to answer for Todd and the things that he said, but we are requesting that you give us privacy and that you afford us respect. And think of this as one of your own children or brothers or fathers or whatnot, but how you would like people to treat you guys if this was going on within your family. So please consider that before you pour any gasoline on this fire. Ooh, you're muted, Arvin. What were your last words to me, Mr. Real? I will unmute you, my friend. Well, I, I hear you, but I didn't mute you that time, and I couldn't unmute you because I didn't mute you. So you I know that's that's my way of blaming you without actually blaming you because I knew it was my fault in the first place. So <laughs> anyway, no, I've been on the phone with Tim Chella, the fellow who was in that that video, um, and we've talked for well over an hour between the two phone calls. Maybe yet he'll come on Radio Free Mormon at some point, but we'll see. And um, no, they haven't found him yet. As of the last time I contacted him, they're very concerned about him. And it may be that there is, um, uh, the, I, well, it is that there is a suspected mental condition pre-existing in Todd that's leading to these ideas. Okay. But that's something that's happening. And it's not happening in a vacuum. Okay. That's the thing. The idea about the destruction and the imminent return of Jesus. This is Tim, Todd's brother is not happening in a vacuum and it's happening in other places too. Do you remember today is November 22nd. It was less than a month ago. It was less than a month ago that Blaze Thibodeau, remember the high school football player got kidnapped by his mom and uncle from Gilbert, Arizona, I believe it was because his mother was taking him North. Everybody thought they were going, I, I re think I remember everybody thought they were going to Idaho that she had given that impression. And then they end up finding them way north of Idaho and entering Alaska from Canada. And that's where they find him. And so um, he was he was uh, returned to Gilbert, Arizona, not in time for the Friday night football game, I think. But at least he was found and returned. And the thing is that this is part of the same impulse that's going on, which is driven by the same books, by the same authors, by the same speakers, by the same podcasters who are talking about signs of the times and the apocalypse and why it is that we know it's upon us. So we've got a news clip about uh, the Thibodeau situation. I think it was done right after he was found. But notice also that the mother, the mother of Blaze Thibodeau, whose name I think was Spring Thibodeau, she believed that her son was the Davidic servant. Okay, that's important to these people, the Davidic servant. The Davidic servant is going to play an important role preparatory to Jesus coming again and right before he comes again. And she got it into her head that her son, even though his name was Blaze, was this Davidic servant. All right. So he was the golden child. And it's going to reference this here, I think, toward the end of the report. It was in the court documents, I know. 
teenager allegedly kidnapped by his mother and uncle in Arizona was found safe in eastern Alaska yesterday. Alaska State Troopers say U.S. Customs and Border Protection notified them at 6.30 last night that they had detained 49-year-old Spring Thibodeau and 47-year-old Brooke Hale on the U.S. Elkan border, with both had active arrest warrants out of the Arizona for kidnapping. AST saying that there was a missing juvenile located as well. Our news partners at Arizona Family reporting that 16-year-old Blaze Thibodeau had been found safely last night. Ben Thibodeau, Blaze's father, said Spring had been fascinated with end-of-days religious prophecies and that Ben had been granted sole custody of Blaze. He is in no way a supporter of anything she's ever believed. Um, he is your prototypical teenager that all he wants to do is hang out with friends and be on his phone. They see him as, as this um, Davidic servant that uh, plays a significant role in the Savior's return. Ben says Blaze was possibly tricked into thinking he was going on vacation to celebrate his birthday. Arizona family also reporting that Blaze's sister, 24-year-old Abigail Thibodeau, was also with them. Braden Snar, Abby's husband, says she tried to convince him to go with them, buying him a ticket to Boise, Idaho. She said, I love you. Uh, we will be back in a few years, and if you're still around, I'll come find you. AST says Spring Thibodeau and Brooke Hale were taken to Fairbanks Correctional Center. Our news partners at Arizona Family says it's unclear when they'll be extradited to Arizona and that Abigail was not charged and that Blaze should be home soon if he isn't already. I didn't see the Davidic servant in that. Maven, I, can you make an appearance? Was, was it there? It was. I've uh, missed it both times. The dad. That's so funny because that was the key part that I wanted, and I missed it both times. But if you guys are both telling me that it was there when I was listening for it, then I'll believe you. It was there. It was there under... Um, the uh the cross there was two times when a cross was shown and the, the second one. time mm -hmm. oh it yeah. wasn't said it was just part of the it, it was, was when the, the dad was talking dad. oh when my ben gosh was okay yep. i was mesmerized by the cross because <laughs> i couldn't there. understand why they're having a cross in a picture next to this kid who's you just got been found again <laughs> what you got I distracted by the cross again the cross. <laughs> i know i see a cross and i get this urge to run screaming from the room i don't know what it is the spirit of christ compels you <laughs> okay so these things are happening by the way they're going to continue to happen probably with greater frequency because the clock is ticking and d-day is probably going to be april 8th of next year yes april 8th 2024 it's the monday after general conference and so i guess the um the only silver lining to this cloud bill is that we have only one more general conference to endure yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, and I was telling you this as, you know, we were sharing conversations back and forth prepping for this, but um, a lot of the articles that you picked or that I looked up to try to get sort, sort of a familiarity with what was going on start back in like 2015, and the church is dealing with trying to put some of this down. Um, there were articles from, I think, the Deseret News as well as one internally within the church where they were talking about sort of squashing some of these end of days folks. The idea, you know, that no one knows the day when Christ comes, right? Except for God himself. And working in a pawn shop, I work with gold and silver all the time. Gold and, and silver, I, silver yeah. and gold. Silver and gold, silver and gold. Yukon Cornelius. Yeah. 
And folks would come in in Southern Utah that were believers in like Julie Rowe and that movement and other end of days and preppers. And when COVID hit, especially, I mean, we sold more silver in 2020 from COVID, you know, COVID happening and everybody thinking the end of the world was coming than we had probably sold in four or five years before that added up together. Uh, folks, there there is a lot more people than you think that are following this stuff and believing that they have been informed. They're the ones who know the truth of when the end of days is. Yes. My dad buys silver. I don't know if he's bought from you. Um, it's possible that he walked in there. Well, if he has yeah. bought from Bill, he's been getting robbed. You don't, yeah, don't buy silver. <laughs> yeah, from yeah. Point, probably, you know, but, but you know, folks do. I, I had a coworker, this was ages ago, but she was telling me, and I never verified this, and I might be misremembering it, but she said that there was a prophecy by Brigham Young that in the end times, um, like a barrel full of gold would be what people were would be pay for a loaf of bread with. And so uh, she was saying that as a, an excuse for hoarding gold. And I was like, that sounds like gold would be useless and that what you would want to hoard is actually wheat. And uh, we got into a disagreement about that. But <laughs> I was like, I don't think Kim Young said that. And even if he did, I think you're taking the wrong message out of it. And then, yeah, we had to kind of change the subject. And I was still a believer then, but that was you know, a time when I was just like, oh, you know, how all those other people get Mormonism wrong. Not like me, though. Of course. <laughs> well, that's why I got to hoard the gold because you're going to take a barrel just to buy a loaf of bread. You're going to need a lot of gold in that economy. Based on last week's episode, what does a barrel of gold weigh? Um, I don't know. Is it, a, is, it, is it really full of gold or is there a monkey in the barrel? Or is it Tumbaga? Hmm. Or is it Tumbaga? <laughs> it depends. It's like Schrodinger's monkey. <laughs> is it alive is it not is it, gold? is it a monkey you won't know until you look and it's a 50 50 proposition so long as you don't look into the barrel schrodinger's monkey that's what we're dealing with how could joseph smith have known about schrodinger's monkey he was so far ahead of his time he was a prophet you can tell and i was an apologist for a while and he had seen hundreds of monkeys so he why does he care about a monkey in a box? Anyway, let's, yes. let's continue on, my friend. Sorry. That's okay. It was worth revisiting, I thought. Okay, <laughs> so what I did was I did some research. I found a very significant video that is on YouTube. It's about an hour long. It has the unwieldy title of Seven Year Tribulation in the Seventh Seal Timeline. Yeah, that's the whole title. <laughs> and with a title like that, can you believe... Okay, first off, this was published. This was put on YouTube March 12th, 2020. All right. So COVID had just started at this point. And what this is, is a Mormon view on the apocalypse. In other words, what the evangelical Christians and the Jehovah's Witnesses, and to some extent, I, probably the Seventh-day Adventists, so I'm not positive about them, they have spent decades, if not more, going into the prophecies in the Bible with focuses on Revelation, the book of, Daniel, and Ezekiel, and with, you know, smatterings from other places like Matthew 24. Anyway, and so they go into it in a way that I never saw Mormons do before, and I was looking for it in the 1980s. 
I was seeing what the the evangelical Christians were doing, and I was wondering why why don't Mormons have this train of thought or train of analysis and study and research within their church? But it's more than just what was going on with we all have this general idea that Jesus is going to come again sometime around the year two thousand because it's the end of the sixth seal and Doctrine and Covenant section seventy seven, right? It's much more than that. It's we're looking at these specific revelations. We're finding where they're fulfilled and things that are going on now. And we're looking at these numbers here and this three and a half here and this half an hour there. And we're going to figure out boom, boom, boom. And he's coming on this day. And the Bible says so. Mormonism had resisted that for a long time. Based on my experience, maybe your experience was different. If it is, go ahead and make a comment in live chat or wherever. But this is my experience because I was looking for it. And it was very general, vague, and ambiguous within Mormon teaching as to when Jesus was going to be coming again. Just that it was imminent, right? Always imminent. Um, And Mormons are much more about saying what has to happen before Jesus comes than figuring out when he's coming again. But now there is a movement within Mormonism that's been present now for at least three years, probably a little bit longer where now the Mormons are putting their own twist using their own scriptures and their own authorities on this whole idea in order to predict when Jesus is coming again. And it's April 8th of next year. And we'll find out why that is here in a moment. If it's not at that that date, it's going to be shortly thereafter. Okay, so this video, once again, the title, Seven Year Tribulation in the Seventh Seal Timeline, was published on March 12th, 2020, six weeks later. It had 375,000 views. And this is why I bring up the fact that this is Mormon from beginning to end. You can't get more than three minutes into this before they're quoting from the Doctrine and Covenants. Any evangelical, any non-Mormon Christian is going to be bailing on this at that point if they happen to get sucked into it by mistake. This has been watched by Mormons. It is made for Mormons. It's probably only going to be watched by Mormons. And probably only those who have an interest and perhaps even a belief that this is so. It had 375,000 views six weeks after it was published. As of today, it has 1 million views. So this video has gotten a lot of traction. And this is only one, I'm sure, among many videos that are out there and books, etc. Okay, so we have a link to the video. What we're going to do is... If you want to watch this video, please do. Uh, It was entertaining, I think, to me. And I got to find out a lot of important stuff. And this is why I want to pass it on to the audience tonight. Why it is that these people believe that it's imminent. Why it is they're doing the things they're doing. So I understand now much better what's going on behind the scenes and what's behind the stories of these strange things that are happening in the news with Mormons. Okay. So we've got the video. Do we have the video up there? All right. So the very first thing is this. The very first thing, any book or podcast about the end of days, when you know when Jesus is coming, has to grapple with is what, Bill? Well, I was telling you earlier, the response within the church is that no man knoweth. Not even the son was the idea within our faith that only Heavenly Father knew. And even Jesus Christ didn't know, uh, at least not before ascending to the Father. Right. And people try. Yeah, that's Matthew 24, right? Okay. No man knoweth that the day or the hour, but only the Father which is in heaven. And Jesus is saying it, so he seems to be implicitly excluding himself from that. 
If it's not the Trinity, we don't have to go there. But basically, no man knows, okay? That's the first thing you've got to get around if you're claiming to know. So this is the first thing that happens in the video where they take apart this and they they challenge that idea and say, well, it's not that no man knoweth. The really, really righteous men and women will know. 107 verses 4 and 5 and again verily I say unto you the coming of the Lord draweth nigh and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night now really focus here because you hear a lot of people take this out of context and says oh no man knoweth the day nor the hour he's going to come to a thief in the night to all of us uh, no no not 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 really uh, it, it says it's going to overtake the world as a thief in the night. Verse five, therefore gird up your loins that you may be children, the children of light. And that day shall not overtake you as a thief. So if we're children of the light, then we're not gonna be overtaken as a thief. Or it's not gonna overtake us as a thief. So there's that clip, right? And it goes on to do it with some other scriptures that are equally as convincing because what they're saying is that Jesus got it wrong. If you're if you're thinking that when Jesus said, "No man knoweth the day or the hour, except for my fa the Father which is in heaven," that somehow we misunderstand what he's saying there. And now we go to doctrine and covenants, and we use a scripture that really doesn't say what it is he says it's saying. And that's this is key because we've got to start off with this, right? These are very very. Um, Let's put put it this way. Exegesis is the problem is the process of trying to extract the meaning from a passage, perhaps scripture. Eisegesis is the process of putting meaning into the scripture that isn't really there. And that's what I see going on here and in a number of other places in this video. So if you look at that, right? What he's saying is this actually contradicts what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Now he didn't put it in those words, but that's what he's saying. So um if we have that do we have that uh, that we could put up there with the um, the passage from the Doctrine and Covenants in it about the children of light? You could just put it up there from the beginning of that uh, slide, and it'll have that that language. See, there it is. Yeah. Right? Doctrine and Covenants 107. And again, verily I say unto you, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh and overtake the world as a thief in the night. What does that mean? It means they're not expecting it to happen. A thief comes in the night at an unexpected time, and they are surprised by it, right? So therefore, gird up your loins that ye may be the children of light, and that day shall not overtake you as a thief. Now, I said surprised by it. I was actually playing into his interpretation because it can either, it doesn't, the straightforward meaning of that to me isn't that you know when the thief is coming. The meaning of that is that whenever the thief comes, you're ready, okay? I don't think anybody looking at this would see this as contradicting the pronouncement that no man knoweth the day or the hour. Because all this is saying, I believe, is the same message that is in the parable of the ten virgins, which is, among the disciples, there will be those that are faithful when Jesus comes again, and those who will not be faithful. And if you're faithful when he comes again, even though you don't know when it's going to happen, because they kept waiting and waiting, right? Then you're, you're in good shape. But if you're not being faithful, then you're out of luck, right? Jesus is coming. Everybody look busy. I actually saw that on the screen here earlier, and I had used that in conversation, I think, with someone before the show. So all I'm saying here 
is that they have to carve out an exception for themselves that they can and in fact do know the day or the hour in spite of what Jesus is reported to have said in Matthew chapter 24, okay? And this is how they're trying to do it here. It will always be those who are righteous and pure and super special who know. And obviously the person who created this video is among that number. And actually we have his name here too. Let me, um, his name was uh, Masayoshi Montemayor. And I think I'm pronouncing that close. But that's yeah. the individual who makes this video. Maven's Obviously a member up, of the church. I'm Maven, sorry? Look, Maven's putting up the comment uh, from uh, somebody in the comments. Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he revealeth his secret to his servants, the prophets. We use that a ton in Mormonism. But as you point out, there are folks within Mormonism who consider themselves some sort of last days experts and they mm -hmm. have with greater accuracy than the LDS manuals pinpointed the moment in which Christ will return and what has to happen bef just before and just as that event is occurring. By the way, um, I just want to mention that in a little known comment that was ascribed to Joseph Smith, and I think this was in the book, The Words of Joseph Smith, which was published in the 1980s, and I read it back then, by E. Hat and Cook, that there was a place where Joseph Smith used Amos 3.7 to say that the prophet would know when Jesus would come. The world might not, but the prophet would, because the Lord doeth nothing, including coming again, apparently without revealing his secret unto his servant, the prophet. So um, they didn't use that in this video, but they probably would have if they'd known about it because it supports their position. Okay, so are we ready to continue? Now, the next part, once again, this is a, an hour-long uh, video. We're not going to play the whole thing. I've selected out certain things that I think are significant, and there are quite a few of those. But it's going to go now into what, the seven seals are. And I think this is something that the uh, LDS church does talk about with the book of Revelation. There's only a very few things, like a cluster of small things that the LDS church teaches about the book of Revelation. And the seals are one because you find the interpretation of that in Doctrine and Covenant section 77. And the interpretation, of course, is that the seven seals are each a thousand years of the earth's temporal existence. And you get to the end of the sixth seal, the seventh seal is opened, and Jesus comes back, and then you got the seventh seal, that's the millennium, that's that thousand years. So this is why there was such an expectation among Mormons, among pretty much everybody, every Christian who believes in a second coming, approaching the year 2000, which I was a member of the church in, and you were too for at least four years, because you were baptized in 1996, right? Correct. Okay. And I had 22 years uh before 2000 so yeah uh, everybody was thinking this is when it's going to be it might be a couple of years off one way or another but this is definitely it because this is the interpretation that joseph smith got from god about the seals so that point has already passed now that year 2000 by the way it should not go unobserved that this entire argument based upon the seven seals requires a belief that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And that is backed up by these church leaders who are 
and again, uh, I don't know that you're going to show these or not, but one of the parts of this gentleman's video is to put those old like bookmarkers up that the church used to describe the dispensations. Yes. And it was very clear and is very clear because the thing is still found, at least at the time this video was made, on the church's website that the church saw and interpreted each of these seals as a thousand year period. Hence, as you point out, the only way this works is if this is a 6,000 young earth theology. Right. Otherwise, the year 2000 would have no real meaning if it's just symbolic. Right. It has to actually be literal for it to be, for it to work. And this is one of the things that's so, uh, if I can say powerful or attractive about the video to Latter-day Saints, is that throughout it will quote from Doctrine and Covenants. We've already seen an example of that. It will also quote different materials from the church website throughout. So it's like this whole radical idea about the second coming is being presented as if it's completely supported by the church. And here's all the materials from the church's website to prove it. That's why I think it's really um, catching on so much, although there's a variation on that we'll get to in a second. So what this individual does is we're getting to about the 14-minute mark, actually 14.10, is he says, okay, well, the sixth seal or the opening of the seventh seal, the year 2000, something big's got to happen then, something important. So he goes searching for something that happened that he can hang his hat on is being prophesied of. And he lands on the Palmyra temple dedication. So of all the dedications of all the temples in all the world, <laughs> she walks into mine. No, they end up focusing on this one because it's in the year 2000. And this is very interesting what he says, because this becomes a literal fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Revelation. Don't believe me? Just listen. The very next chapter, verse 1, Revelation 8, 1, says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in the heaven about the space of half an hour. Okay. There's a lot of uh, speculation. Can I come in here for a second? This is half actually the next one. Yeah, this is the silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. I was looking for the Palmyra Temple dedication. Wow, suddenly got really quiet. Yeah, you know. <laughs> if you don't have to grab the video, maybe and just go to the. Yeah, channel. if you would do that, that'd be great. Oh, there it is. That's the one. Oh, did you? We just have it out of order. Okay, so go ahead. Let's if go we can do that one, to uh, Revelation chapter seven and see if we can get some detail on this mm. event that opens the seventh seal. Remember, we're looking for something happening around the year 2000. Okay. Verses 7 and 9, it says, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindred and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and crowd with a lot, cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. Hmm. Okay, there's a hint of a temple there. What does that sound like? There's no temple. Well, 
Yes, that's a Hosanna shout. Okay. The dedication of the Palmyra Temple, right? That was the that was the Hosanna shout. Uh, the palm leaves in the hands of men dressed in white. Uh, salvation is also also synonymous with the word Hosanna. If you didn't know that, so you can Google that. Uh, but the palm leaves, the, the 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 white hankies, that actually represents palm leaves. And the palm leaves, they did that in the ancient days as well as today. And that uh, that actually signifies that means come save us. That's what it means. So the Palmyra Temple dedication, uh, April sixth, the year two thousand, was the first temple that was broadcast, and you had to. Uh, to have a temple recommend to be there. It was the 77th dedication, dedicated temple. It was the 100 announced temple, exactly 170 years from the church being organized. The first temple dedication to be broadcast via satellite to every tongue of people. Over 1,300 sites via satellite. Uh, there was, that was just, you know, stake center. So uh, there was so many people there. Uh, they were dressed in white. Like I said, they waved white handkerchiefs, represented palm leaves, which represents the phrase, God save us. Okay. All right. Now that we know that the Palmyra Temple dedication was a word-for-word -word prophecy, word-for-word -word prophecy that happened in the year 2000, let's see what happens next. And that's the end of that clip. Right. So... Notice what happened there. There's a, a wonderful alchemy that happened between his reading of the passage in the book of Revelation and then his making it fit into the Palmyra Temple dedication by changing the meaning of words. <laughs> and first off, just saying out of nowhere, oh, look at this passage. Well, there's a hint of the temple there. Where the hell is the hint of the... There's no hint of the temple there. None. He inserts the hint in order to make it match the Palmyra Temple, which he's sure this is a word now that we know this is a word-for-word -word fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Revelation, right? And one did not need to have a temple record. Can you put that back up from Tim Rathbone? Because this guy makes stuff up. And I found that out later on. You can't trust this guy. You can't trust anything he says. And Tim says, one did not need to have a temple recommend to be there. My daughter and sons were with me. And I'll bet you weren't wearing white either. I mean, I, I imagine you were wearing temple, I mean, church dress, right? but not temple dress. So, and you weren't wearing white robes. Remember, it said white robes and they have palm th palm leaves, not white handkerchiefs, okay? So all this stuff has to be changed and reinterpreted, re-envisioned in order for him to triumphantly proclaim, now that we know that the Palmyra Temple dedication was a word-for-word -word fulfillment of this prophecy from the book of Revelation. It was church dress. Thank you, Tim. That's what I expected. Of course. What, 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 what? That's what it would be. Church dress. So this guy makes up stuff all over the place. And you have to be very creative and very charitable. It's a Procrustean bed, right? If the facts, if the bed is the prophecy and the facts are too long, you cut them off to make them fit. And if they're too short, then you pull them apart in order to make them fit. This is what he's doing. And then he proclaims, guess what? It's an exact match. The other thing that's going on behind the scenes that you have to understand, it's implicit in what he's doing, is that he's quoting from, what, a couple of verses, three verses in the book of Revelation? 
which has, uh, I think it's like 22 chapters. So I'm going to guess, oh, I don't know, a thousand verses, do you think? Is that too many? That'd be too many. 500 verses? There's 22 chapters. There's a lot of verses in it, okay? And what he's doing is he's getting the best he can. It's just cherry picking. He's just finding a verse that he thinks he can massage enough to make it into a, a fulfilled prophecy in the Palmyre Temple. And he may have another one that he might use. The problem is, is that he's avoiding all the rest. All the rest should be able to be fulfilled. If indeed this one passage is seeing something as microscopically small from the celestial perspective as the Palmyra Temple dedication, but it, nothing else fits. So this is just an exercise in extreme sharpshooter fallacy or cherry picking, but even the cherries don't match. So they have to be manipulated to make them oranges. That's what's going on. Okay. So that's one thing. This is one thing that's very important. And I'll, you know, people who are thinking this is the last time and it's going to be April 8th. This is one of the things that they may or may not believe or have heard of about the significance of the Palmyra temple dedication. All right. So now we're going to go to, Oh, what was it? The silence in heaven, right? The half hour of silence in heaven. That's a phrase that comes from the book of revelation and they're going to talk about that because you know 2000 is 23 years ago jesus is overdue we have to make up for that we have to give jesus a little bit of space here for him to still come back and be okay with the revelations and here's where they use the half hour of silence in heaven to make up for lost time The very next chapter, verse 1, Revelation 8, 1, says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in the heaven about the space of half an hour. Okay. There's a lot of uh, speculation on what that half hour of silence is. Um, and we don't have a lot of information on what it is, on what it means. Uh, I was given inspiration, told to read the next chapter of Matthew. I was studying in Matthew chapter 24 about uh, the events, right, the tribulation, and I was told to turn to the next chapter, which is the Ten Virgins. Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit about the Ten Virgins and why this has... Can we stop this for just a second? Silence. Thanks very much, Maven. Um, notice that he has to now be inspired, Okay. Silence in heaven for the space of half an hour is in the book of the Revelation. By the way, um, I'll save that for a second because um, I was able to call Dan McClellan today because I had a question about something he was saying, which I thought he was pulling out of an orifice. And indeed, it turns out he is, right? But this is one of the things that we do, okay? Silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Half an hour is an unusual phrase. Dan McClellan, who I was lucky enough to be able to call, I've got his you know, phone number and I abuse it regularly. I had a question about the New Testament. Is there any connection between this half hour and the parable of the, the virgins? And I didn't see one, but then again, I don't know Greek. So Dan McClellan looks it up and he does a computer search. He looks up the, um, the Greek term that's translated there as half an hour. And he says, nope, that's the only place it appears in the entire Bible. So when he says, now, I was studying Matthew 24 when I'm thinking about this thing from the book of Revelation, about a half an hour, silence in heaven, and now I'm inspired. 
I am directed by the Lord, is what he's saying, to go to the next chapter, chapter 25 of Matthew, where it has the parable of the virgins. So now he's going to explain how it is that the 30-minute warning, the half an hour, it's not a warning, it's a half an hour of silence. That's all it is. He's going to turn it into a warning because he wants it to be a warning. Now he's always going to apply it to the parable of the, the, um, the ten virgins, and he'll do so now. A half hour silence in ancient Jewish wedding procession, right? This is the ten virgins that are about to go into the bridegroom, right? Uh, the bride and the wedding party would wait and wait. And this particular uh, parable says that the bridegroom's call was near midnight, right? So they're waiting, they're waiting all day. Usually it's during the day, right? They're waiting, they're waiting. And, and then one person would actually run to the house and say, the bridegroom is coming. You have 30 minutes. They were given a 30-minute warning to prepare. So the silence in heaven is about the space of a half an hour, right? About 30 minutes. How long is that? Have we prepared? Let's hear what... Can uh, we stop for just a second there? I'm sorry. Okay, that's total BS. 30-minute warning. 30 minutes. 30 minutes, Mr. Real. 30 minutes. They're supposed to go out and run to everybody and say, you've got 30 minutes and then he's showing up. What does that even mean so, in a society uh, that doesn't have timepieces? Just imagine, too, that you're going door-to-door -door with all your friends and family to tell them they have 30 minutes by the time you tell the first people that you have 30 minutes, you get to the 14th house down the road and now it's 22 minutes. It doesn't hold up anyways, unless you go to one location and tell everybody at the same moment. And this was a specific reason that I called Dan McClellan because I'm, I'm sensing, look, there's something he says later on about the planet Jupiter where he's totally off. And I caught him immediately because I knew he was making stuff up. But here, I don't know that that didn't happen. I've never heard of it before. I've studied the Bible pretty thoroughly. Dan McClellan has studied it more than I have, and I thought I'd give him a call. I mean, I looked it up in my Oxford Bible Dictionary for Matthew 25. I didn't see it there, but then, you know, they might have just missed it. It might not have been important to the author. But this 30-minute crap, he's saying it as if it's a fact. It's made up. What he's doing is he has just taken the half-hour silence in heaven from Revelation, said that he was inspired to apply it to the parable of the virgins in Matthew 24. And now that becomes, for him, a historical fact that someone would run ahead of the bridegroom 30 minutes in advance and say, you've got 30 minutes. Never happened. It's no part of it. This is his own invention. But now he's going to quote to Bruce R. McConkie. Okay, this is the breathing room that Jesus needed for oversleeping the year 2000 alarm clock. Is this half hour silence in heaven? The very next chapter, verse one, Revelation party would wait and wait. And this particular night, right? And then. There's Bruce. So the silence in heaven is about Bruce R. McConkie says. Uh, page 382, The Millennial Messiah by Bruce R. McConkie says, could this be interpreted to mean that such period of half hour of the Lord's time, which is 20.8 earth years, will elapse after the commencement of the 7,000 year period and before the outpouring of the woes, 
which is the last three and a half years of the tribulation, about to be named. Okay, uh. Timeline so far, April 6, 2000, Palmyra Temple Dedication, Hosanna Shout, plus okay. half hour of silence, 20.8 years, equals around 2020, 2021, for Midway Hinge Point, as President Nelson calls it. And President Nelson doesn't call it a hinge point. He says we're at a hinge point right now, and he means something completely different by it. But of course, this guy is going to impute to President Nelson the knowledge that Jesus is coming back on April 8th, because how could this guy have figured it out if the prophet of the whole earth doesn't already know it? So anyway, anyway, the main thing there is that he cites to Bruce R. McConkie, the millennial Messiah. I mean, I was a member of the church, new member of the church, when that was a big deal. I'm not sure it's a big deal anymore. They are obviously casting their nets far and wide to find these little things that they can use to try and support their belief. So this is the um, the breathing room of 20.8 years past the year 2000 for Jesus to show up again. And we're right in the thick of it. And it's happening right now. Maven. I just wanted to highlight this comment that I thought was really interesting from Rebecca. Um, she points out that when this video came up, she watched it and she was a believer, um, a member of the church and fully caught in and caught up on uh, all of the stuff he was saying. So I think she says, wow, this is insane. I'll go ahead and read it, I guess, for, for listeners. She says, I'm just catching up, but holy crap, I watched this when it was posted and completely believed all of it. Wow, this is insane. And I just, I, I guess I liked it. And I just had a moment of what, what that must be like for Rebecca to have kind of come full circle and, and be uh, watching it here now at, at and, you know, on this side of things. I just thought that was neat. That is. I think that's great. And I'm glad that Rebecca is now being able to call it insane. Because I would agree. I would agree that it, insane, eh, let's just say I disagree with the reasoning. Uh, that's probably nicer. It's not insane. Some people can, can be driven mad by it, but it's it, not insane uh, in itself. Just a little side note. Um, I was trying to find the the image that he used in the slideshow. I, I just want to demonstrate this. Because these timelines are often based on these thousand-year increments yep. and sort of figuring out like, oh, like 4,000 BC is Adam. Um, and I'm still looking. Maybe I'll find the one that he was showing, which I thought was really clear. But it is a, it is a LDS-approved thing. And it's not just Mormons that did this. It was all of Christianity that had sort of separated. Because I find tons of Im images from Christianity generally where they're talking about dispensations and they place them into thousand-year increments. But this is a... A page out of a manual uh, that the church used in the past. When you recognize like first dispensation, notice it says next to Adam, 4,000 BC. Mm -hmm. Notice also too, there are only six generations uh, in that first dispensation. I know Adam lived to be whatever, 300 and Noah was 420 and whatever it was. Oh no, well, I think Adam was past 900. But the idea that there's only six generations in this thousand year span, second dispensation, um, I'm trying to find the time mark for that one, uh, but three generations. Third dispensation, it shows Noah at 2944 BC. So the LDS church in its official curriculum deemed, and you and I grew up with this in Mormonism, Adam was at 4000 BC, the second dispensations at 3000 BC, the third dispensations at 2000 BC. And all of the materials that the church had us use on Sunday backed that up and stood as a witness that these are thousand year increments approximately. 
and that this is a 6,000-year-old earth. Again, not just Mormonism doing it, but Mormonism, again, is led by prophets, seers, and revelators, and they imposed in the curriculum that this was the way to understand it. Anyway, just a side note. Okay, very good. And so you're using the same kind of church materials that this individual is using, but he's going so far beyond the materials, but trying to make it sound like it's all one and the same. Yeah, and you made it apparently very successfully. I'm sorry, Bill, what? You're good. You made a good point earlier, which is, we were talking about this, that curriculum every year when we studied uh, the gospel in Sunday school or priesthood and relief society, uh, we had lessons every year on the second coming, and we talked about the dispensations, and we talked about the general things that would need to happen. But as you pointed out, the church always stopped shy of being explicit, and then you could run over to Deseret Book if you wanted to, and you could get three or four books that would give you a greater uh, approximation of a closer approximation of when this would happen and events that needed to happen before and after. But Mormonism was always instructing us to be thinking about this topic, even though they wouldn't delve quite into the spaces that guys like the author of this video did. Right. It raises the curiosity. It whets the appetite, but doesn't sate it. Mm, right. That was my experience back in the 1980s. I got a book. I mean, I tried to find books on the subject and they didn't go into any detail. And okay. so I kind of gave it up because obviously Mormon authors or at least authorities or people published by Deseret or Bookcraft weren't going into this kind of detail that I was interested in. Right. So the next thing that the video goes into, the next clip we have is where he's talking about the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. For those of you from Provo, the abomination of desolation happened when Antiochus Epiphanes, also called Antiochus IV, the Greek emperor over this region, who really did not like the Jews for whatever reason, he went ahead and he desecrated their temple by having a pig sacrificed on the altar and then raising a statue of Zeus in the temple or in the courtyard of the temple and uh, commanding worship of it. And this was the abomination of desolation or the abomination that maketh desolate. It was um, a, an abomination and it, um, oh, what is the word for when you go into sacred space and then you desacredize it? Oh, come on. This is terrible. Maven, Maven, what is it? <laughs> Maven can't stop laughing. Come on, help me out. What is it? No, I, I sacrilegious. Is that the, I, I don't, I know the word, but it's, desecrate. I, I could have told you, desecrate, it's both yeah. It's, it's both of them, it's <laughs> So this desecrated the temple. before you asked, I, that's all. Okay, yeah, so this desecrated the temple, which then ends up, well, anyway. Uh, but that's the abomination of desolation. Historically, it's, it's a, a sacrilege within the precincts of the temple that's put there by a pagan, a non-believer, obviously. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is saying the same thing's going to happen again. The abomination that make it desolate is going to happen. Now, when Jesus is saying this, I'm sure he's thinking about the same thing kind of happening with the temple that's right there in Jerusalem, because that's the only temple that he knows of. But this individual who made this video has identified what the abomination of desolation is. Play the tape. Scroll over to Daniel chapter 12. And this is verses 9, 10, 11, 12. He said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So this is going to be 
only given information to people in the last generation, us. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Okay, so now we know who's going to be able to understand these prophecies. And from that time that the daily sacrifice should be taken away. Okay, now he's understand, He's giving you more information. Something's going to be taken away, the daily sacrifice. And the abomination that maketh desolate set up. Okay, so something's going to be set up. Something's going to be placed there. And there shall be 1,290 days, huh? Three and a half years. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh unto that cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Okay, that's a little longer. Let's take a look here. Daily sacrifice taken away for three and a half years at the middle point of the seven-year tribulation. Hmm. Can we stop for a second? All the historic pioneer temples are being closed. When the abomination that maketh desolate, when the freaking statue of Zeus was set up, it de it um, what was that word again, Maven? Desecrated. Desecrate. It desecrated the temple. So in other words, it's out of commission. You can't do any more temple work in the temple. And the temple work is sacrifice. You're sacrificing animals. Yes, the word actually means what it says. They're sacrificing animals to expiate sin and do this and that and give thank offerings and all these other kind of offerings that are prescribed in the law of Moses to be done in the temple by the priests and the Levites. So here we have a situation where there are no sacrifices that are done in temples today. I, I mean, I hope not. There are no sacrifices that are done in LDS temples. So the idea about taking away the sacrifice for three and a half years has no relationship at all to an LDS temple. But he's going to make it fit. He's going to shoehorn it in because it's a temple. And now he just wait till you see that, what it is that he says fulfills daily. his prophecy. Maven? I was going to say not even daily because the temples aren't even open every day. So it's, it really... It really has nothing to do with that. Yeah, if you actually listen to the words of the prophecies and compare it with what his proposed fulfillment is, it's got holes like a Swiss cheese never dreamed of having. Mm. But what you're counting on the audience to do, and what a lot of them do, is they just have the surface awareness of hitting general similarities. And then... He's skipping off to another thing before you have enough time to slow it down, pause it, and think, wait a second, this doesn't really match anything. Yeah, this is the, again, I, we, I, I can't speak for you, but I think I ran into this a lot in the church. Uh, there were so many firesides early in my time in the church where folks were trying to make sorts of connections, not to say last days, but other things as well. But this is sort of the way we did things as Mormons. We tried to figure stuff out. We were encouraged to think about the dispensations. We were encouraged to think about the second coming. We were encouraged to try to be ready and prepared and to uh, sort of search the scriptures to know when this time might uh, be approximated, even though we couldn't know exactly when it would be. And it, you sort of set up a space for people to guess and be wrong, and also for people who are mentally unstable to take it too far. Yeah, and we're seeing it happen more and more frequently, I think. And and I want to be clear, uh, just like Rebecca uh, Loveless, I think it was, who posted it, I don't expect that she's mentally imbalanced. I mean, the vast majority of people who believe this 
are not mentally imbalanced. Mm -hmm. They're just very, very faithful. And they believe this is happening and they believe these proofs. And a lot of them are willing to uproot their lives and move to another state to a much less comfortable situation because they believe it so much. And that's why I want to make it really clear that um, I'm not saying that people who believe this are insane because then it's only those people over there that we have to worry about. No, it's us. This is happening within the church. And I expect that there probably is not a ward in the church, at least in the United States, that doesn't have at least one, if not more people in it who are clued into this. Yeah. So if you look at what he has written here on his slide, you're going to see what his proposed fulfillment is of the abomination of desolation being set up, which he's kind of le going to leave behind now. He's not going to really return to that. And the daily sacrifice being taken away for three and a half years is the fact that certain temples were going to be closed in 2020, 2021, like the Salt Lake Temple. I mean, it's still closed, isn't it, Bill? It was closed this past summer when I went down there for Sunstone. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's reopened yet. Yeah, and it's it's November of 2023. So all of these timelines are also kind of squishy when we're talking about three and a half years. But what he's saying in his slide, and he'll repeat it here as soon as we get back to his audio, these renovations will take about three and a half years. So these are just the historic pioneer temples, right? It's not all temples. It's just the historic pioneer temples, whatever the heck that means. And what it means is, all the temples aren't being closed, so all the daily sacrifices are being taken away, even if we call what happens in Mormon temples sacrifice. It's just in these temples. Okay, so what? The, the problem that he really has, which he doesn't go to, is if he's saying that the daily sacrifice is being taken away for three and a half years in these temples. The abomination of desolation had a pagan emperor making the temple desolate and desecrating it. This is the church. This is the church who is stopping the sacrifices in the temple, even if we go by this person's reasoning. Why is the church doing it when the whole episode has to do with an antichrist-type individual, someone who is not a friend to the church doing it and desecrating the temple, not just remodeling it, desecrating it? Yeah, I, um, anyway, I, I, it, it just, it strikes me, I'm pausing here because there's so many times that he missed, I don't know if it's, it feels like it's almost intentional. Like he it is. is, yeah, because it's too much to, for my radar to go like, oh, he just accidentally missed a thing or two and overreached a time or two. I, it feels as though there's an intentional effort to make his stuff line up at all costs. Yeah. And he's he's aware of it. He may not be aware of it as much as I feel like I am observing it objectively and with a critical eye, though not a cynical eye, just a critical eye. Um, but he'll go ahead. We have the rest of the clip to play. And this is why I have certain of these clips. I ask Maven to stop him, and she's kind enough to do it, because he has so many things that he says that are just wrong. And he'll string them together so fast that by the time you get to the end of it, it's hard to remember them all. And if you don't pause it there to talk about it, he's off to other things. Mm. Yeah. 
I, I just wanted to say that this is a common tactic in conspiracy theories in general. So with the um, like flat earth that, you know, my brother fell for, they do the same thing. Michelle Stone did the same thing in her response to our video, um, where just if you're just listening, a, a lot of things can go by that seem to make sense in the moment. And it's really not until someone questions it that it, you could really see how ridiculous it is. So this is this is common across the board, I think. But, when they showed yeah. that picture, yeah, when they showed that picture of um, Spring Thibodeau, for a second I thought it was Michelle Stone. I mean, there's a very there's a similar look. It's really in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She's got black eyes, lifeless eyes, like a doll's eyes. Dun 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 or dun. You, you, uh, <clears throat> I, um, there you, you just go. go halfway through and play. Okay. You, we, so just FYI, I, we didn't hear the last 10 seconds of what you said. Why not? Um, because you were muted. Did you mute not, me I, again? I, I have not muted you once since the beginning of the show. You can ask Maven if she muted you. I don't know if that happened, but you mean you haven't muted me once after the beginning of the show. I have not yes. muted you once since the beginning. <laughs> since that one time you did. I know. <laughs> anyway, uh, can we just put it there? It's probably best I was muted. So if we can put it right in the middle. What what are we putting in the middle? We didn't this slide. We didn't play it all the way to the end, did we? Oh, gotcha. I was just saying what he was gonna say because it was written on the slide. Oh, gotcha. Oh, unmute the, unmute the slideshow itself, Maven. Sorry. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, we don't hear anything, Maven. Maven. Initially 1,290. Oh. oh, my gosh. Keep going. To the middle. To the middle. You want to go forward? Yes, yes. Forward, ever onward. 1,305 and 30 days. Okay, that's a little longer. Let's take a look here. Daily sacrifice taken away for three and a half years at the middle point of the seven-year tribulation. Hmm. hmm. All the historic pioneer temples are being closed 2020, 2021 for remodel becoming earthquake-proof. These renovations will take about three and a half years. Our daily sacrifice is being taken away. Not only this, so I've made this presentation a while ago, but uh, we are now um, at a point where the coronavirus, right, the plague now, has shut down five temples for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Five as of, I think it was yesterday, last time I looked. So not only do we have the four <laughs> pioneer temples being shut down but now we have an additional five temples that are being closed strange what year is this 2020 hmm mm. okay i don't believe in quinky dinks oh my gosh okay uh, he doesn't believe in quinky dinks bill i'm not sure there's any quinky to dink here it every time he goes hmm. <laughs> every time he goes hmm I, it just sounds like he's thought this whole thing through and he's just playing on our emotions. Like this is all scripted, you know? Oh yeah. He's definitely very full of his reasonings. 
Yes, uh, he thinks that he is absolutely right. Hmm, what else could it be? Uh, but imagine how thrilled he was when all the temples shut down because of the coronavirus. Then there were really no sacrifices going on in the Mormon temples. But wait a second, they're open again. Uh, well, you see, it's a moving target, and as time progresses and as history unfolds, right, then new explanations have to be made for things that don't end up being the way that they were predicted to be when they were just starting to occur. So we've got that. That was the end of that. And um, notice he never really got around to any kind of, I don't know, statue of Zeus or any counterpoint to a statue of Zeus being erected in a temple. That kind of went to the wayside. And now he's just having the temples closed so we can't do our sacrifices in them. Now, the next thing he's going to talk about is the Great Tribulation. All right, the Great Tribulation. The righteous will flee into the wilderness for three and a half years. Now, this is one other thing that he's going to talk about from the book of Revelation that is mentioned in Mormonism, and I think it's because Joseph Smith gave the interpretation of it, the woman who flees into the wilderness, right? She has the baby, and the dragon's trying to eat the baby, so she grabs the baby and flees into the wilderness for times, uh, time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half times, which is usually understood to be three and a half years in a prophetic sense. The way that typically Mormons talk about this is this is when either... The great apostasy, right? So it's a lot longer than three and a half years. But that's when the church goes into the wilderness, and then it's brought out of the wilderness with the restoration. I suppose some Mormons might think, well, uh, though I haven't heard this really very much, that maybe it happened under Brigham Young when they went out into the wilderness and the church went into the wilderness again, you know. But notice something. This is a new interpretation. It is a radical interpretation. And the interpretation isn't that the woman went into the wilderness and that's the great apostasy to be restored. This is the Mormons in Salt Lake City and along the Wasatch Front. They have to get out of there. It's the super special, super smart, super righteous Mormons who are defined by those who understand this message to mean what this guy says it is. They will understand and they'll get out in order to not, not to be caught up in the destructions. They're going to be falling on Utah and Salt Lake City. So if we can play that part, that slide, do we have that? So verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation. Okay, he just named it. So he just named all these things, right? Great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. So the second half with all of this information here with the abomination desolations and on. We have 666 viewers. Great tribulation. Okay, so Revelation 12, 6 and 14. And the woman fled, not skipped, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared. Did I do that? Sorry, quickly? I, I thought no. I thought you're you were signing to me that you oh, no, wanted to pause. Oh no, I'm fleeing. with this woman okay. in the wedding dress into the wilderness. <laughs> okay, here we go. Spirit of God, that they should feed her there for a thousand two hundred and three score days, so three and a half years. Okay, and the woman were given. Now you understand the woman. You look in the the manuals and you look at the footnotes. So the woman is the church. Now, I wouldn't say every saint in the church or every believer, I would say the righteous of the righteous, right? 
Um, so the righteous, the ones who are going to have that personal guiding, directing influence of the Holy Ghost, which prophet, the prophet, President Nelson keeps talking about. And to the woman, the righteous, the righteous saints were given two wings of a great eagle. Why do you need wings? Why do you need to be on a, I don't understand. Well, it's because you're going to be going fast that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And I put there three and a half years, obviously. So time in the manuals, it says one time is one year times plurals two years and a half a time is a half a year from the face of the serpent which is obviously the devil okay and i just i just wanted to add people are, are commenting on the the bare shoulders and i'm just saying that's that's why um you know she had to flee so quickly because she didn't have time to finish sewing the sleeves onto her dress that's that's why that's that oh i thought it was because the dance committee members were after her with pitchforks and torches Okay, so anyway, yes, thank you. Uh, but notice what he's done. This is no longer historical. This is no longer the apostasy and the restoration. This is present day. It's three and a half real literal years. And these are only the super righteous. Well, I wouldn't say it was every member of the church, you know, just the ones who are really, really righteous, like I am, and understand this prophecy. Well, if it is the righteous Mormons who are going to flee, then... What, what the background on this is, is that they're, they're going to be fleeing Utah. That's what he knows, by the way. And this is where he gives himself away. And this is where he also gives away the fact that what he's doing is he's sailing under a false flag. His entire presentation is designed to make you think that everything he says is supported by the church. The church's website, the church's diagrams, the church's manuals. He even references President Nelson there. What could be more loyal than saluting President Nelson? But he's not telling the truth because he believes that President Nelson, either President Nelson knows all this and is just keeping mum because it's a secret, but more likely he believes what a great many of them do, which is that the church is corrupt. It's like a dead fish. It rots from the head down. It's completely corrupt, and that actually the fact that the church is in apostasy and is corrupt now is prophesied in the Book of Mormon, okay? That's another common understanding that they have of certain things in the Book of Mormon. So I think this guy right now just gave away the fact that he's trying to get Mormons who are believing Mormons who will be impressed by his uh, citing to all of these uh, Orthodox Mormon sources, including Bruce R. McConkie, for crying out loud, and that that will help them come into his fold so that he can then help them understand that they've got to get the hell out of Dodge because the Mormon church is going to be destroyed and is a symbol of God's displeasure with the corruption of the Mormon church. Destruction starts in Salt Lake City. Minus Temple the Square. destruction and desolation, this should be good for housing prices, though, in Utah. So that's my hope. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just don't buy now. Oh, no, no, no. You wait till this all happens, and then you get the big house for the cheap house, small house price. Yes. Okay, and so Rebecca was saying, yeah, there was a portion of people who thought that the prophet knew he's just keeping his mouth shut because, you know, that's what we pay prophets to do. They get the revelation from God, and they sit on it. So everybody else gets destroyed. I mean, 
That's not a nice thing to do if you're the prophet of the church and let all the members of the church who aren't quite in the top 10% of super righteous get destroyed because you're not telling them that God's going to destroy them all unless they get out. It's also not very nice of God to tell his prophet that information and ask him not to pass it along to us. So yeah. God and the prophet are both shame on them. Yes. Well, it's just hard to figure out. Um, what is it about God? His ways are mysterious. Not our ways, huh? <laughs> no. So we got that part. Did we play all of that slide? I think we did. That's the great tribulation. The righteous will flee into the wilderness for 3.5 years. And for many of those righteous, the wilderness is Idaho. And now we get to this idea about the Davidic servant. Okay. This guy touches on the Davidic servant. This is an idea from Isaiah that becomes very important. It was also something I think that Joseph Smith talked about although not a lot, and he had a son he named David, and there was all these expectations surrounding that son, which, of course, never pound out because they never do. And, I mean, they're so desperate at this point, they're even considering the possibility that David Bednar might be the Davidic servant. Heavens forbid. Yeah. Talk about the abomination of desolation. Yeah. Yeah. He desecrates things wherever he goes. So let's play this clip, though, so you'll understand the importance of the Davidic servant. And that's why I wanted the clip about the Thibodeau situation from a month ago before Halloween and the kidnapping, that part to have that part about the Davidic servant, because that's part of this puzzle and why the mom spring Thibodeau thought her son, even though his name is blaze, he's this Davidic servant. The two witnesses, revelation 11, three are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days at the time of the restoration and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. That's Doctrine and Covenants 77, 15. See also Isaiah 51, 19 through 20, Zechariah 4, 3, 11 through 14. These two prophets appear to possess the sealing power of the priesthood, which they, like prophets before them, are able to control the skies and smite the earth with plagues. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay, Amazing. this is Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Uh, no doubt they will be members of the Council of the Twelve or the First Presidency of the Church, is what he's saying. So this is found in doctrinal New Testament commentary. Okay, that's his opinion. Uh, there's a lot of other opinions. Um, you know, Isaiah kind of describes one of the witnesses as being the Davidic servant uh, from the line of David. His name is David. Some people are saying, oh, one of them could be David or Benar. So who knows? Uh, he is also in charge of the, um, the area, right? Uh, the new Jerusalem. So he's in charge of the area of the new Jerusalem. So Missouri, he said the new Jerusalem and that's Missouri. Yeah. So. I think maybe that was a slip up that he meant. I think he means that he's over the Jerusalem area, which I'm not sure if that was true in the first place. And if it was, if it's still true now. Absolutely. And so we've got the two prophets, right? And the problem is, is that now this idea is getting in there that one of these, one of these prophets, once again, we're back to the book of Revelation. This is like the only other passage other than what Revelation 14, 6, I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven. Uh, with the everlasting gospel, blah, 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 every nation, tongue, uh, people, kingdom. Um, but 
This is talking about the book of Revelation, the two prophets. And the only thing that we've ever heard was Bruce R. McConkie saying that he expects these would be two members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency. These are going to be apostles. These are prophets, seers, and revelators. If it says they're prophets, then it's going to be two apostles who get whacked in Jerusalem. Then they're going to lie in the streets for, what, three and a half days, and they get resurrected in front of everybody. Three and a half is a big number. It's half of seven, blah, blah, blah. And uh, But this is going to be reserved for apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is what Bruce R. McConkie says. And the hysterical part, and the another huge tell on this guy's methodology, is how he treats Bruce R. McConkie when he doesn't agree with what he has to say versus how he treats Bruce R. McConkie when he does agree with what he has to say. He was throwing out a lifeline, or Bruce R. McConkie was throwing him a lifeline earlier on about this half-hour silence in heaven, making it 20.8 years. Thank God we need this. We're in 2023, for crying out loud. We need this extra time. Bruce R. McConkie gives it a hail, Bruce R. McConkie. You're a hero. You're a prophet. All honor and laud to you. But now we get to Bruce R. McConkie, who's saying it's going to be two apostles. Well, the guy doesn't like that idea, right? Because we we it's going to be a Davidic servant. And he doesn't agree with David Bednar, but he says some people say that. But the problem is, is now he's got Bruce R. McConkie being quoted in this paragraph that I think he's taken off the church website. And now he's going to dis be dismissive about it by saying, oh, this is something he wrote in his New Testament commentary. And that's just, this is just his opinion. I hope we can play this part again. It's at the very end. It's just his opinion. It's in the new, it's, it's in the doctrinal New Testament commentary. Like somehow that's less authoritative than his millennial Messiah, which got quoted before for that 20.8 years representing the half hour of silence in heaven. Do we have that part just so you can hear exactly what it is he does to Bruce McConkie when he doesn't want to accept his opinion? Which, was it just the end of that last clip? Yeah. Okay. I don't... Let me pull it up. Maybe 30 seconds from the end. 30. Let's go right here. Okay. That's his opinion. Uh, there's a lot of other opinions. Um, you know, Isaiah kind of describes one of the witnesses as being the Davidic servant. Uh, from the line of David, his name is David. So people are saying, oh, one of them could be David or Benar. So who knows? Uh, he is also in charge of the um, the area, right? Uh, the New Jerusalem. So Okay, and it was before that that he said, well, it's from his doctrinal New Testament commentary. Very good. Okay, so this is once again what we find happening. I mean, it happens in religion. It happens in politics. But specifically in this apocalyptic uh, exegesis, of scripture and of authoritative statements, what we find is, is that even if it's from the same source, if it matches what you want it to say, then it becomes authoritative. And if the same source in a different place doesn't match what you want it to say, then it's just this guy's opinion. Seems like great logic, huh? It, it, <clears throat> it's just... Well, the only thing I want to add to this, and not that this guy's directly said it in terms of leaders being fallen, but you sort of see kind of the writing on the wall at times. But you, like you say, you can't you can't say the church has fallen and then pick leaders to have them say things that connect the dots for you, and you can't throw out a leader praising his inspiration and closeness with the Holy Ghost in one instance, and then another just go like, eh, well, I got time; he's wrong. No biggie. Right. 
But here in the very same video with the 1 million views, he does it plain as day. Yeah. And uh, apparently there's a sizable number of people who view this and don't recognize that mm -mm. because they're doing the same thing. They're buying what he's selling. And so they're seeing the same strengths that he's seeing and ignoring the same weaknesses that he's ignoring. Right. So the next thing, now this is really the big thing that's coming up. Really, really big. It's huge. And this is why April 8th of next year, 2024 is going to be it. Because of, I'll tell you right now, okay, spoiler. There's going to be a solar eclipse. April 8th, 2024. And it's going to have a path of totality, right? That's where if you're within that path of totality, as it moves across the earth, if you're on the earth looking up, that's where you see a total eclipse. That's the path of totality. This is not the first eclipse. Obviously, there's been other solar eclipses. It's a solar eclipse. Seven years ago, on a night just like tonight, there was another solar eclipse that crossed the United States at the other angle. So there's a big X on the United States of America by two solar eclipses seven years apart. Well, technically, six years and eight months. But what's four months between friends when you're trying to fulfill a prophecy. So this is what got everybody so excited. And this is why they know it's April 8th. And April 8th is a, a really, really important date. And probably a lot of them believe Jesus is going to come. Although I understand, obviously, there's a variation of beliefs amongst this group. But these are the things they have in common. So if you'll show us this, this is something also not, this is not Mormon centric. This is out there in the non-Mormon Christian apocalyptic world too, that they're really grooving on this and all the associated blood moons, the moon turning into blood. <laughs> but it's the solar eclipse that he's going to talk about here. And this is the part that I found so fantastic or fascinating. Okay, let's get into Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the days of tribulation, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened. So you have another total solar eclipse. So you have one before and one after. It's kind of marking, right? Marking that event. So 2017, okay, August 21st, 2017, we had the Great American Total Solar Eclipse, which crossed the entire nation. <clears throat> now, if you know anything about total solar eclipses, that's very, extremely, extremely unusual. So this massive event uh, eclipsed over seven cities named Salem. If you know anything about Salem or Salim or Shalom, that's... Uh, when I say it's crossed over the city, that was the path of totality. That was the darkest point. So if you can see that teeny red dot, um, uh, just to the left of that, uh, it's Salem, Missouri. So in Missouri, uh, that's actually the area of the New Jerusalem where we're going to build the New Jerusalem. So let's go over to the next slide. Salem. Can we stop right there for just a second? Shalom. Can we stop for just a second? Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to remember all this, and the audience won't either. I actually took the time to look up where Salem, Missouri is. And it's about 200 miles away from Independence, Missouri. Okay. Now, if you remember what he just said, that's right, right around where the temple's going to be built. Well, no, it's not. It's like 200 miles away. Just for the record. Salem is in the southeastern section of Missouri, Independence being up in around the northwestern section of Missouri. I believe I have that correct. 
Oh, and if we can go ahead and go on with what he's saying, I just wanted to mention that at this point. They're not right next to each other, huh? No. The path of totality. Uh, Salem and independence, yeah. Completion. So the Great American Total Solar Eclipse of 2017 crosses seven cities named Salem, as if God took a black marker and crossed off the word peace seven times to say there won't be peace for seven years, obviously. Can we the start in the second part of the eclipse? Lands right yeah, it's obvious. He just made all that up, okay? Now, if we grant him that he's correct, that the path of totality from the 2017 uh, eclipse went over seven cities in the United States that are named Salem. If we grant that, by the way, there are 26 states in the union that have cities with the name Salem. It's a very popular name for cities. And it's not just for Massachusetts anymore. If we grant him that he's correct, and that's the question right there. The fact is, is that now he's going to interpret it as meaning God is marking them off like with a magic marker from space with this solar eclipse. And what it is, is seven of them. And it's like, he's taking peace because that's what Salem means, Bill, taking peace from the earth. Well, for seven years, isn't it obvious? He says it's obviously, but none of those things that he concludes from that are at all obvious from even the fact that we're accepting for purposes of argument that the solar eclipse, the path of totality, went through seven cities in the United States named Salem. So first off, you said there were how many Salems in the United States? 26. I looked it up. 26. So he selectively picked. You said that was 26 states. Is it 36, Rebecca Raven? Did I, I may have remembered it wrong and written down 26, and it might be 36. That makes I it even better. I thought you said 26 states, so I was just assuming that 10 states have two Salems in them. But anyway. I guess it's possible. But, there's a lot. I mean, yeah. Make it tough on your postal workers when you got two cities in the same state with the same name. Right. I guess you have different zip codes. So then the next step would be, for anybody who really wants to take this seriously, is to see how close those Salems are to the path of totality, which I love saying that phrase, by the way. It's a beautiful phrase. And then how many Salems are he's mentioning are not in that path, but also how many other Salem's were close enough to the path that they were similar to the Salem's he did count. And hence, could he have added more years to it, but he needed it to be seven. So rather than the other, you know, 30, 29 Salem's that he didn't include, uh, these are the seven that he did include and, and which are close and which aren't like it becomes, once you look at it with a serious critical thinking mind, it, it simply falls apart as some guy who's, who, start, who does what Kerry Molstein did, which is start with the conclusion and work your way backwards. Exactly. Starting with the conclusion of seven years of tribulation, which means no peace. And so we go to the Salem, the Salim, the Shalom, the seven, the magic marker. They mean years, right? No, they're cities. Why would they mean years? Because you've already concluded that there's going to be seven years. So these cities are, damn it, they're going to be years. We're going to shoehorn this thing in and make it work. And the thing is, is that the reason we're bringing this up is because so many people are believing this. They're not looking at it the way we're looking at it. They're totally in on this. And they can't see that it makes very little sense. Now, I will tell you that it has got to be endlessly attractive. And I hope I didn't already say it before. I've talked to so many people about this on the phone in preparation for tonight's show. But it is so attractive to um, end-time 
enthusiasts to have solar eclipses seven years apart that are making X across the United States of America. But I have to tell you that it does seem that God is really, really fascinated with the United States of America because that's what gives this so much force. It's going over America, the United States of America, twice in seven years. So have there been other places where it's made crosses? I don't know, seven years apart? We'll never know because it's not important to these people. This is God. This is the God of the United States, not so much the God of Israel or the God of China or the God of anywhere else, but it's in the United States that he's going to show forth his signs that were prophesied 2,000 years ago by people who lived on the other side of the planet. And, and just FYI, this idea of the seven Salems with the total eclipse, meaning the second coming of Jesus, this guy didn't invent this as a believing Mormon. This has been sitting around in the Christian world being discussed as well, as you can see from the slide on the on the screen. This this isn't just a Mormon thing. This is all of these end-of-day folks with the second coming of Jesus. And it's sort of strange that the Mormons and the Christians generally sort of seem to be working together on this. Yeah, I don't know how many people who are into this recognize the fact that they are getting on the train very late after it's left the station, and this has been going on for a very long period of time in other religions, non-Mormon Christian religions. This isn't something that they came up with. This is a very, very late, at least as of this point in time, it's a very late Mormon twist on an old theme. Yeah. And also the idea of conservative Christians heading north to Idaho to defend their religious liberties. Mormons aren't the first to be doing that either. Yeah. So, shalom, shalom. Shalom. Okay, so uh, let's read. This is where us, the saints, are going to be rebuilding the New Jerusalem, which translates from Hebrew to English as the New Jerusalem, which is the, the city of peace, right? Um, seven years later, in 2024, the next total solar eclipse makes an X in the middle of America, the heartland of America, Using Google Earth, you can zoom in and lands on Salem Road, which is the context of completion. So, okay, can we hang on a second? I don't know if that's at that the end. Okay, you go ahead and finish. It's almost at the end. I'm sorry. And X marks the spot. X marks the spot. This guy is so desperate to have another Salem, even though it's going to raise the number to eight instead of seven. No, this this X marks the spot with the second one that comes across. This path of totality, it's got to be 20 mile, 25 miles wide. If you got the place where they cross seven years apart, you're talking about an area that's what? I don't know, uh, 600 square miles or something like that. It's, it's a very large space. And this guy is now committed to going down and using Google Maps to investigate every single freaking road within this rather large area and finding a Salem Road that's in that area where the two paths of totality cross. You see, it's gotta be true. Otherwise you wouldn't have these remarkable, remarkable coincidences, Bill. There is a discussion on the internet that there are other Salem's in the line of totality, but because it added to the years, so we have a Salem, Kentucky, Salem, Missouri, Salem, Nebraska, Salem, Wyoming, Salem, Idaho, Salem, Oregon, 
And I'm not sure if those are, I think those are ones that are not included in the original. They were all mentioned in that map. Okay. Yes, that was the path of totality. And I think those were the seven. Because I, you I know that, South Carolina. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, as you're pointing out, there's this X uh, uh, because another eclipse happens in 2024. And then that's the path of totality for that eclipse, as you're pointing out. Um, I like Kentucky. this comment by Lisa. And it was what I was thinking and said to RFM as well. X marks the spot. I was seeing treasure map and treasure digging. So it all comes full circle. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Moros Islands, we'd have gold here. <laughs> X marks the spot. God is now creating the treasure maps mm. with the solar eclipse and his huge, you know, Sharpie from the heavens. All right. Now, here's this next part, because all of a sudden we've been dealing with this. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to go totally uh, into the Zodiac and up to Virgo for a second. We're not going to talk about much about what he talks about because it's absolute, utter rubbish. And we only have so much time. We're already at an hour and 36 minutes into this. We are getting closer to the end, however. Th those eclipses being really the big deal. That's what everybody's losing their mind over. These two eclipses crossing over the U.S. seven years apart, you know, minus four months. And uh, that's got to be Jesus coming back on April 8th or shortly thereafter. So he's talking about Leo. He's talking about Virgo. It's a bunch of junk. Go watch the original if you want. But here's where he says this brief clip, something about the planet Jupiter, which gave away the farm that this guy pulls stuff out of his hat. There's a, a constellation uh, uh, planets. And this, this, this planetary alignment is just it's blowing me away, but what happens is um, Jupiter, the king planet, right? We call it the king planet because with his stripes, we are healed. Uh, it's striped and it's the largest planet and literally our savior planet. Anytime we hear of uh, any type of asteroid, anything like that coming to hit the planet, right? We're always saved. Why? Because the gravitational pull of Jupiter takes the hit literally for us every single time. Every single okay. time, Every yeah. time. You know, that was, when I when I heard him say that about the asteroids, you know, we never never have to worry about asteroids because Jupiter's sucking them all in with its superior gravitational field. I thought, you know, I know a bunch of dinosaurs that'll be glad to hear this. <laughs> and, and he said, "We hear like as if this is a common thing. Like we hear about asteroids like on their way to Earth, but then Jupiter like flies in and saves us every time." Just, I was it's like, "This king is planet. not even a thing." Haven't yeah. you heard of it called the King Planet before? I am not a shrimp. I, I am a king prawn. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking just how lucky it is that, you know, in English, stripes as in lashings and stripes as in, you know, narrow bands of alternating colors just so happened to be uh, the same word, happened to be a homonym in English. Um, I don't know if anyone in the chat can tell us if that's the case for Hebrew or Aramaic or any other ancient language where that kind of a connection could be drawn. Um, otherwise, it might be two completely different words, and that might be a little embarrassing. So, Right, because stripes, you know, they're lashes, right? They're lashes with his stripes, with his lash wounds. We are healed. So uh, Isaiah 53. But, yeah, it's Jupiter. Obviously, it's the king planet. We all call it the king planet because it's the biggest planet. It's a competition. The biggest planet in every solar system is king. Um. <laughs> and it's got the stripes and it's not like a year doesn't go by when we hear some kind of warning 
in some kind of news story that NASA has located this asteroid that's going to have a near miss with the Earth, right? And no, it's not that um, Jupiter is is saving us, right? It's just that we're not going to quite make the connection because we're here and the asteroid's going this way. Yeah, and, and there's some science that shows like the last significant asteroid that hit the planet was like, I don't know. Well, I, I want to say, I don't know what it was, 20,000 years, whatever it was. No, no, it was very recent. 12,000 years. If you, if you want to look it up, I can. Last asteroid hit the planet. It's like uh, less than 100, 200 years. Well, I don't mean like a, I don't mean like a little one. I mean like a, a big boy. Well, okay, but there's because, one in Mexico, and you're probably talking about that one in Mexico. Yeah, I'm thinking somewhere between 12 to 20,000 years ago. Right, and it hits, and things die, and Jupiter isn't there to save us. But when you work with a 6,000-year-old Earth, all the asteroids that came before the 6,000 years don't matter. Like, they're different. That's a different thing. Now we're in the six, seven dispensations of the gospel, and this is the only time we count asteroids. Right. But it's just this outlandish idea that Jupiter, because it's a very small player in a very big solar system, but compared to us, yeah, it's really big. Compared to us, it has a much greater gravitational field. But to just pull out of your arse Ask. the idea oh. that Jupiter sucks in all the asteroids that enter our solar system so they can't hit Earth and therefore it's our savior and it's like a symbol of Jesus with the stripes and everything, that is utter rubbish. He just made that up. And as soon as he said that, I said, okay, I can't trust anything this guy tells me. So I have to put a question mark next to everything that he tells me. Yeah, he's connecting dots where there were never dots to connect. No, but it makes a good story. It does. It makes a good story. Great story. Yes. And people are believing this. Yes. They're believing. They're people who know that the dinosaurs got destroyed by a freaking asteroid hitting the planet. At least that's the general understanding. Okay. Uh, obviously there's different views out there but that's mainly it we know that asteroids have hit this freaking planet multiple times but to say that jupiter the planet jupiter it saves us so we don't get hit by planet uh by asteroids that's ridiculous absurd okay so now we're almost done here and that was what i wanted to say about jupiter and um he's going to lay out the entire timeline here in a second and then we're going to get to a very interesting letter written by Vaughn Featherstone. But first, the recap here that he provides with a little diagram of his own making. I don't think this is from a church source. Okay, here's the timeline. Seven-year tribulation, the seventh seal. So the year 2000, as we're told, um, on the Book of Revelation overview on the church website. April 6, 2000 was the temple dedication Hosanna Shout that opened the seventh seal. And there, if you look at the top, that's opened, but also the half hour of silence begins, move towards the middle of this timeline that I made uh, today. August 21st, 2017 is the total solar eclipse, but also that's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation then 2020 2021 that's the half hour of silence ends right that's 20.8 years and that's where the hinge point that's the hinge point and translation look up translated beings and what what the purpose is 144,000. uh it's translation to endure to the end that's how you're able to endure to the end because you're translated 
Okay. And then the year 2024, that's uh, April 8th, the total solar eclipse. And that's the end of the seven-year tribulation. And uh, Christ is already here by the year 2033. And I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So you see that? It's all up there, just sort of like you said. Uh, there's some inconsistencies, but the timeline appears to be clear. And that is why April 8th, 2024 is go time. And then he said at the end that as of 2033, Jesus will already have come. And we're going to get to that in a second. Did you have any comments that you wanted to make before we go any further, Bill? No, no, we can go. We can do it. All right, because there's a very special letter that was written by a very special 70 GA named Von J. Featherstone. And this is, this is really the smoking gun that shows this guy is right. Did you doubt him all along? Never. Just about Jupiter. A little. Okay. Elder Von J. Featherstone. Everyone loves this guy. Okay. He had a phenomenal prophecy. Um, April 6, 1983, uh, Von J. Featherstone, Elder Featherstone, typed up a letter to be put in a time capsule on the cornerstone of the Atlanta Georgia Temple. He wanted to make sure it was it was good to go uh, for the time capsule, so he sent a copy to Salt Lake, and the brethren said, "Great, go ahead." So this is the copy of the letter that's to be opened uh, fifty years from 1983, which is 2033. Okay, this is a fifty-year time capsule. Remember this. Here it is, the copy that we have from church headquarters says to my beloved fellow saints in the 21st century, God bless you. We love you. We're grateful for you, for your great faith in Christ. Many of you have probably lived through the darkest period in the history of the world. Those of you who read this letter have witnessed the second coming of Christ. Whoa, let's read that sentence again. Those of you who read this letter have witnessed the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is to be opened in the year 2033. The day for which we have long awaited, what a glorious experience to live in the day of our Lord. When our Lord, our Redeemer, the very Son of God, is reigning personally upon the earth. We can imagine what General Conference must be like to have the Savior address the people. Wow. This is amazing. I would encourage you to read this entire letter. We're not going to go over it. I just wanted to show you what it talks about. There's his signature at the bottom. First corner of the 70, executive administrator. That was in 83. That was in 83. Okay. So, I mean, how can you argue with this, Bill? Vaughn Featherstone, a member of the 70, wrote a letter to be included in, I think, the capstone of the Georgia Temple, to be open time capsule 50 years from now, saying, you guys, have our, Jesus has already come. Do you know how many letters we disregard in modern Mormonism from church leaders? Do you, do you know how many statements that have been said that we just don't pay any attention to anymore? Old bookmarks that talk about the dispensations of the gospel. You know, in other words, this guy picked something that backed him up and he disregarded a million things that told him his entire theology is bullshit. Well, the whole thing is this, because you, you even indicated as much at the beginning of the show, you know, I joined in 78 and 2000 is looming. Everybody understands that Jesus is coming. 
I will tell you a personal experience. It's a very small story, but I'm in my 20s, so it's sometime around 1984, 1985, and I'm with a bunch of other young adults from the student ward at UT. We're just having some kind of party, and I stop, and I have this, 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 this inspiration. And I looked around, and I said, wow, how does it feel to know that nobody in this room is going to die of old age? Mm. And everybody looked at me and said, wow, yeah. Isn't that nice? Everybody understood this. Vaughn Featherstone understood this. It was people like him that I got the whole idea from in the first place and other leaders in the church. So this is the entire zeitgeist, if I may use a German expression here. This is the spirit of the times in Mormonism. We know that Jesus is coming, and it's going to be right around 2000. So if he's going to write a letter, it's going to be open 33 years after the year 2000. Obviously, Jesus will have shown up. So he's using this as his rhetorical flourish that represents his real belief, besides which part of him's got to realize I'm not even going to be around in 2033, so I'm not going to have to answer for this if I'm wrong anyway. But um, yeah, I'm sure he believed it. But now it's being used, this idea of the zeitgeist of the pre-2000 Mormonism that you and I both experienced, and probably most people here in the audience, or many people in the audience experienced, is now going to be used as a smoking gun to show that Jesus will have returned to the earth in his second coming and glory prior to 2033, maybe hanging heavy weights from slender threads. And if if Jesus isn't back giving general conference talks by 2033, are we allowed to then use this same letter to show that the church isn't true? Or would... Apologists, of course, apologists already have their explanation for disregarding this letter because they can't have this guy making the video be right anyway. Right. But I but you know, we talked about this over the last couple of weeks on the show that apologists are always setting up the argument so that the evidence either confirms the truth of the church or they have a loophole that they get to disregard the evidence. And I just want to say with this man. Are you willing, whoever you are that created, he had some strange name. You tried to say it earlier, I think, and I do think you got it pretty close or right. Well, this man who made this one hour video, are you willing to acknowledge that if Christ isn't back by 2033 and most of us watching the show will still be alive then? If that doesn't happen, will you then leave the church and admit that the church isn't true? And the chances of that are almost always never because the evidence only is important to you when it works one direction. Absolutely. And even if he says that right now, as soon as, you know, it comes and goes and there's no Jesus, then he's going to not blame Jesus, not blame God, not blame the scriptural texts on which he based his calculations, but no. he will blame himself for getting the calculations wrong. And he'll do a recalculation and give us a new date. He will reconfigure his mathematical problem, and now it is 2043, and now he knows. That's the date. And by the way, this has played out in numerous religions. When the Jehovah's Witnesses said that Christ was coming back in 18, whatever it was, 90, and then they said he was coming back again in 1914, in each instance that it didn't happen, the backfire effect kicked in, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, a few left, but the majority of them, they're in the... in. Uh, um, the degree of which they believed was more significant. They've done research on this. They've done studies that show when, when someone says a prophecy within a religion and that prophecy does not come true, 
the majority of believers actually believe even more so after the failed prophecy than before. And it's played out in Mormonism a few times as well. I don't know if you were going to mention it sometime tonight, but and I'll leave it to you if you were, but the whole idea of Joseph well, Smith. I think they believe that Jesus did come. Or like They have an explanation for why the 1914 did happen. That's He's my circling. understanding. He's circling in the atmosphere somewhere. Right. And I mean, Wendy Nelson gave a talk kind of implying that Jesus is um, in the board meetings with wow. the, the top you know, it's, so kind of that it's also already 16. happened. So I feel like that's another out is that, oh, no, it totally did happen on April 8th, right after general conference. That's when Jesus came, had a little sit down, kind of, you know, reviewed the tape, stuff like yep. that. So, yep. Anyway, I, I had a memory, actually, I wanted to bring up. So my my uh, father <laughs> and his grand. So my my grandfather, I guess, was old enough to be my dad's. <laughs> grandfather uh it was kind of like a second marriage kind of a type thing anyway so my my dad told me one day that his father had told him that he was very certain that jesus christ's second coming would happen in his lifetime so his my grandfather's lifetime but he told my father if it doesn't happen in mine i it for certain will happen in yours and my dad without catching it i caught it at the time but i didn't say anything because i think i was like eight i was i was a young child my dad said i'm pretty sure it will happen in my life in my lifetime but if not in mine definitely in yours and that's I how sure that he is kind of funny. Yep, that's yep. how sure he is my my father-in-law's patriarchal blessing says that he will not die that that the millennium will come and he will twinkle you know, there's this whole twinkling thing in Mormonism. His son, my oldest brother-in-law, in his patriarchal blessing, says that he will help build the temple in Missouri. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He's 50 years old, and he weighs 400 pounds, and he loses his breath walking across the room. But he's going to build the temple in Missouri. And my father-in-law, who's now 70-whatever, 70 75, and doesn't have a lot of time left, he's going to twinkle. And the older generation, they have all of this stuff, Maven. So when you say that, I go, of course, of course. Like every one of these 60, 70, 80 year old guys in Mormonism has something in their patriarchal blessing that tells them they're going to be around when Jesus comes back. And none of them are going to lose their belief when it doesn't happen. And it's not going to happen, guys. I'll sit here till whatever day I die, whatever time you guys go, we can sit here, you know, we can write it out that 10 generations from now, Jesus isn't coming. And well, I don't have any kids and I'm not going to. So I don't have someone that I can pass that down to. So I don't know. Maybe they're right this time. And maybe it really will be maybe in my lifetime. Time. Just saying. Yeah. Millions Jesus. Had it before. Jesus is the quintessential carrot and stick combined. Yeah. He's exactly. the carrot to look forward to. It's just in the offing. You can almost taste it. And he's also the stick that's going to beat the crap out of all the people who are dumb enough not to believe the way you believed. And you will have the ultimate vindication. Frankly, the worst thing that could happen for Christianity is for Jesus to come back. Yeah. Um, again, side point. I just wanted to show another reference. This is, remember these bookmarks, RFM? Oh, yeah. You could get these bookmarks at Deseret Book. And every seminary teacher bought these and gave them to their students. All the students had these. I remember going to church when I joined it and uh, half the kids in my Sunday school class had these. But notice again, Adam at 3900 BC, he lived before 3900 BC there on the far left. And as you go up around the, the left-hand side, up around the top, 
You Coming up around the clubhouse turn. Yeah, so the LDS church believed in a 6,000-year-old earth, and today they don't, and nobody gives a lick. Nobody cares that all of it changes. And like you said, this guy will be proven false, and he will just revise his chronology, come up with a new video, and it'll get another million hits. Absolutely, because there's a million suckers born every minute. <laughs> and, and play on that, by the way, this guy gets a million hits to his video spouting absolute bullshit. And and we get, you know, 12 to 25,000, unless we're interviewing Cody Brown, we get 12 to 25,000 views on most of our stuff. And it reminded me of the comic. Like, if you can say bullshit, you're just much more likely to get a line of people ready to listen. And when we tell unpleasant truths that might force people to revise their testimonies in a way that has them stepping back from some degree of faith in the church, nobody wants to get in line for that one. We few, we happy few. We band of brothers. That's us. That's our audience. <laughs> a million. Yes. It's insane. Yeah, and, so, and so this individual now sensing that perhaps his reference to the Von J. Featherstone. Oh, by the way, by the way, another thing he makes up out of whole cloth is that Von J. Featherstone writing this letter as a 70 doesn't really carry the authority that he wants it to carry because he needs to buttress the authority of this. So he makes up a story out of whole cloth that he that von featherstone took the letter if you can get that slide back up he mentions it in the slide too this piece that he makes up and that it's before that part that's this is the second this is the next slide it was the one before it the one that we just played right there where he says he wanted to make sure it was okay to put this letter in the time capsule so he sent a copy to salt lake the brethren said it's great go ahead bs he sent a copy to Salt Lake to be included in the archives where it's included with his papers. There is not one shred of evidence, to my knowledge, that he actually had the brethren review a freaking letter that he's writing for a time capsule. I mean, who cares that he's writing a letter and it's going to have to be reviewed by the brethren. But he wants it reviewed by all the apostles. So now it has the imprimatur of apostolic authority. So he uh, makes up this story to say that they said, gave it the thumbs up. Thumbs up, Vaughn. We agree Jesus will be here by 2033. You know how you can know that there is no provenance source showing that the brethren approved it? It's because if that existed, it would be in the slideshow. Of course it would. <laughs> yes. Very good. Very good point. I mean, he's he's um, certainly um, sourcing everything else in its dog. If he had something for this, he would source it. But sensing, sensing. Yeah, doesn't circulating a copy of the time capsule letter defeat the purpose of a time capsule letter? Well, it certainly is a spoiler. I'll agree with that. Yeah, it's like, what's the point of this? It makes digging up that cornerstone in a few years just about worthless, doesn't it's it? kind of pointless. I hope they've got, I don't know, something in there that uh, right. will be a surprise anyway. They didn't get filed away with the church. Probably old comic books and maybe a classic car or something. Hey, that'd be cool. <laughs> that'd be so cool. Number one, Amazing Spider-Man. Something worth something, you know what I mean? Not like the words of the dead prophets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Haney. All right. Now we've got sensing, sensing, I said, that this uh, reference to Von J. Featherstone might not cement his case. He seeks another witness to the truth of these words, and he casts about and finds a quote 
that nobody's ever heard of before from Joseph Fielding Smith from the 1930s. Nobody's ever heard of this quote, but everybody's heard of statements like these throughout the history of the LDS Church by various people. And... Okay, let's get a second witness. Okay, this is President Joseph Fielding Smith, Doctrines of Salvation. The day of the coming of the Lord is near. I do not know when. I sincerely believe it will come in a very day when some of us who are here today, this was on April 5th, 1936, will be living upon the earth. That day is close at hand. It behooves us as Latter-day Saints to set our houses in order to keep the commandments of God, to turn from evil to righteousness if it is necessary, and serve the Lord in humility and faith and prayer. Guess what? Yeah, President Nelson was born in 1924. That means during that talk, he was 12 years old at the time. Guess what? He's still living on the earth. It's happening soon. That's exactly what that means. It's happening now. He's still on the earth. Well, he's sort of still living. But yes, he's drawing breath, unlike Elder Ballard. So he's still alive. So here's the thing, okay? We take a quote at random amongst a myriad of possible quotes, going probably back to Joseph Smith, who did a Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24 to make it so that those who were alive in the dispensation when it was being restored would live to see the coming of the Son of Man. And that didn't work out. And throughout the history of the church, we've had the same kind of thing. There are those alive among us today who will stand to see the coming of Jesus Christ. So out of all this entire sea of such quotations, he picks this one from 1936. And why do you suppose he picks this one, Bill? Um, So I was sitting here trying to find the Joseph Smith prophecy to share. You're going to have to let me off the hook here and... Oh, okay. He, I, right. The whole audience is going, because it fits his theory. That's why he's picking this one, because this one is in the 1936. You got a really old guy named President Nelson, who's the head of the church, who was 12 years old. So time is running out. There's still time left, but not a lot if we use the one from 1936, because we're using it now in 2020 when the video went up. Now it's 2023. Okay, time is getting short, and this is all designed to make it line up with these two freaking, you know, solar eclipses and 2024 and April 8th. And Jesus is definitely going to be here before 2033 when we open up the time capsule and reread the original of the letter by Vaughn Featherstone, which still will not have been fulfilled. How is the eclipse that they're using from 2017 and the eclipse from 2024, how are those different than the eclipse that happened like uh, two weeks ago? They're seven years apart minus four months and they go across the United States and they make a cross and they hit seven Salem's bill. Are you being intentionally dense here? Can't yeah. you see the difference? And why isn't the guy using this prophecy for instance? So Joseph Smith said it was the will of God that those who went to Zion with determination to lay down their lives, if necessary, should be ordained to the ministry and go forth to prune the vineyard for the last time or the coming of the Lord, which was nigh. Even 56 years should wind up the scene, right? Yes. And then and then Smith goes on further. And this is Fair Mormon, by the way. And they, of course, go, well, we don't have any idea what winding up scene could mean. It it could mean anything. And Joseph never really told us. And when he asked the <laughs> Lord, here's what the Lord told him. He says, I was once praying very, again, Joseph Smith. 
I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man. When I heard a voice repeat the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice and trouble me no more in this matter. So you have what Joseph Smith seems to be indicating, uh, that 56 years should lead to the winding up scene. And, you know, again, this one is not touted out there by the guy at all because it doesn't fit his narrative. Exactly. Because that would just be wrong. Yeah. Because obviously that time is long since gone. We need a similar statement from 1936, 100 years after Joseph Smith said that one for it to fit the time that we're living in now. Right. And give us just a little bit of time left and make it clear that this is imminent. Absolutely imminent. So there he goes to Joseph Fielding Smith. Calls him president, even though in 1936 he was anything but. He was an apostle, he was a church historian, he wasn't the president. And once again, this is in order to give it more authority than it actually might have. And notice, I mean, he, Joseph Fielding Smith, God bless him, all, all he says is, I sincerely believe, that's the quote. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm prophesying of this. He's not saying this is the way it is. He says, I sincerely believe. But because he wants to use this, this becomes a declaration of prophetic intent yeah okay and now he's going to finish off by making a reference to president nelson because that's what every good mormon does at least if you're trying to get people to think that you're a good mormon and appeal to good mormons and just a little brief blurb at the end for president oh there he is president nelson i just have to say i love that he chose this picture it's the best <laughs> one clearly president russell nelson says do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves and please do it now. Time is running out. That's what he said in 2019. Mm. Okay. Thank you so much. There's a lot to go on here. I hope you guys uh, go ahead and take that into study, pray about it fast about that, but coming April, 2020 conference, it's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be life changing. It is the hinge point. And I do testify that the Lord is coming and the prophets know it. And they've been warning us. They've been trying to get us to, to separate from Babylon and to live a higher and holier way that we can do that. I say the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So maybe it isn't a false flag. And maybe he is saying the prophets know it. Okay. Maybe he's part of that group. So the prophets know it. The church is still corrupt. But the, but the prophets are part of the super special righteous ones. And they already know that what I'm saying is true. They're just not saying it because I don't know. There's really no explanation for that, honestly, but they're not, but they believe it. The prophets believe the same thing that this guy is saying. That is part of his belief. So yeah, he does think that they're still prophets, but he's just got to tell the hard truths that the prophets aren't willing to say and to warn people to get out of Salt Lake City and head into the wilderness for three and a half years. Wilderness being Idaho or points north. Yeah. If you go on to LDS.org or churchofjesuschrist.org, and you do a search from 1971 or whatever up to the present moment, because that's all you can do on LDS.org. Or if you take exactly. that, uh, that repository of all the conference talks and look up things yeah. like time is running out, time is nigh, all the phrases we use to indicate that you don't have very long. He, again, he's selectively picking a moment where President Nelson says something like that. But there are a thousand other occasions throughout church history where church leaders have indicated that time is short at hand and that you better get busy doing what you need to do. 
Right. When it comes to the second coming, Bill, time is always running out. Every generation of youth is the is the elect generation who's been selected for the last days. You know, we have all these things that happen in Mormonism that are used over and over and over again. And the next generation will be tricked into thinking they're the special ones, too. Right. And way back, uh, maybe an hour or so ago, when I was struggling to figure out an estimate of how many verses there were in the book of Revelation that were being ignored in favor of the very few that were being implemented. Apparently, Maven looked it up and there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. So they're focusing on about four of them and ignoring 400. Yeah. Now, the last thing we're gonna talk about is something that actually kind of started all of this. And by that, I mean this post, this podcast that we've been talking about went up in early March of 2020. Something happened later that same month, which he does not address in the video because it didn't happen until after. You would think that maybe something would have, I don't know, prophesied that, or he could have interpreted something to see it coming, but it had to do with an earthquake in Salt Lake City. So you can imagine just how thrilled people were who believe that the church is basically corrupt and God is showing his displeasure by shaking it. And something else happened to the uh, the Moroni statue on the top of the Salt Lake Temple is that his arm broke basically, and the I think his whole arm broke, the one that was holding the horn to his mouth, and it fell down. Not through the street, thank goodness, because somebody probably would have been seriously injured, but it, it caught up there on the top of the temple spire in a flat spot. But it broke off, and there were many people. I mean, I looked at this, and I thought, oh, wow, there was an earthquake in Salt Lake, and, you know, there was a problem with the arm, and uh, it's the weak spot, obviously, in the statue. So is it just the, 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 the horn that fell off, or is this? I think it was the whole arm. I think this is a recreation. But regardless of what it is or is not, there were a lot of people who saw this as having uh, prophetic implications regarding the second coming, believe it or not, and that it was nigh, yay, very, very nigh. So this is from Religion Dispatches, article by Christopher James Blythe, March 24th, 2020. And this happened on March 18th, 2020, 7.09 in the morning, Residents of Salt Lake City and the surrounding counties of northern Utah awoke to a 5.7 magnitude earthquake that struck 10 miles outside the city. The 12-foot angel standing on the building's highest tower of the temple was shaken to such an extent that the Trump once positioned to its lips was dislodged and plummeted to the base of the spire. A spokesperson for the LDS Church noted, so this was the, the church's take on it. It wasn't, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming. It was saying, this event emphasizes why this project is so necessary to preserve this historic building, i.e. the renovations plan for the Salt Lake Temple, and create a safer environment for all our patrons and visitors. That's the church's response to it. Individual members of the church, however, looked for greater prophetic significance than the prophet did, than offered in the statement on the building's well-being. All right? So they have a number of things that they said. And one of the things that they said at the time was that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Amos. And one of the things they said was that in the, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. Well, Bethel, that's a city. Yeah, in the Old Testament. Amos is in the Old Testament. But Bethel literally translated is house of God. And so that's what the temples are, are called. So it could be any temple. And in this case, it's going to be the Salt Lake Temple. Yeah. The prophecy goes on. 
says, I will also visit the altars of Beth El, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And then the conclusion, when the trumpet fell off from Moroni on Salt Lake Temple today. In other words, that's what happened. Now, of course, the problem is, is that the altars have literal horns. And when I say literal horns, I mean, there's an altar where the sacrifice is made, and on each of the corners of the, the surface, right, which is square, there's a place where the metal goes up in a horn. That's one of the, that's the horns that are falling off the altar. So to take this now and to apply it to a horn that's being blown by an angel Moroni on the top of the temple and falling because of an earthquake might seem to be a little bit of a stretch, but there were a lot of people who believe this. Another popular interpretation among the Latter-day Saints seeking a prophetic explanation has been that the missing Trump is a sign that the church will stop its missionary outreach. And the reason they saw it as a sign is probably because, guess what happened at the time? COVID's just breaking out, and one of the first things that happens is the church calls the missionaries back home. So now the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, and the dropping of the horn by Moroni is a signal that that is happening. And of course, that's going to happen right before Jesus comes again. So that's what they were thinking at the time. As a result, Latter-day Saints have looked for a time when their missionaries would be called home, after which there would be an increase in natural disasters and disease leading up to the second coming. Two days later, after the horn dropping, COVID-19 brought about what some have already begun to see as the fulfillment of this prophecy with the church's announcement that in the coming weeks, based upon world conditions, substantial numbers of missionaries will likely need to be returned to their home nations to continue their service. Okay? Now, once again, they're seeing this being fulfilled right then. They're very excited about it. And one wonders what happens now that three years have gone by, the pandemic has largely subsided, and the church has once again sent out its missionaries and is now, right now, bragging about how there's never been more missionaries, which I question. But nevertheless, missionaries are going out again. So how does that fit in with the original interpretation placed upon it is that now the missionaries are be being called home because the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. Well, apparently not exactly because now they're going out again. And once again, this is the idea of the moving target of history or the future as it reveals itself and becomes history. And then the prophecies and the predictions have to be modified as events unfold and change from what was originally thought would happen. Any thoughts there, Bill? Because I'm going to talk about Rod Meldrum in a second. Uh, no, no, I don't have anything further. We're good. Okay. <laughs> I'm, looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the Moroni statue. I made a little joke with you earlier, and I was trying to find uh, – because somebody noted it, by the way. Somebody noted it in the comments that the Moroni statue looks sort of inappropriate, like he could be doing something. I'll just put it up here on the screen really quick. Well, it's good to know that somebody in the live chat has as dirty a mind as you do, Bill. You're not alone. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it reminded me, it reminded me a little bit. Let me see if I can find this piece here. Uh, if you remember the abducted in plain sight, uh, what happened in that story? You know, tell me about a time you went above and beyond for a friend. And then. Uh, what are you talking about, Bill? No, that's okay. Let's move on. I, I if I explain it, I'm going to. <laughs> I've never it. heard of this at all. Offending half our audience, but it just looks like Moroni's uh, having a good time. That's all. I feel like I was a better Mormon than you. 
You probably were. <laughs> you probably were, at least most of the time. <laughs> I, le I led a sheltered existence, and I'm the one who put myself there. All right. I, yeah, if I explain it any further, folks, folks who, if you have eyes to see, you'll see, ears to hear, you'll hear. Everyone else, let's just, we'll just move on. <laughs> ears to hear or something to something. Yeah, some, some organ to do something that the organ naturally does. Got it. All right. But Rod Meldrum, hugely popular, Mr. Heartlander. And he's in on this too. Okay. So it's not just for, um, what is it? There's uh, Daybell, Vallow, there's uh, Julie Rowe, right? They're not these other people that are, that are cropping up and many, many more. Rod Meldrum, who has thousands and thousands of people and uh, who follow him and hang on his every word. He's in on this too, by which I mean he supports these last days prophecies being fulfilled of Jesus Christ coming. So Rod Meldrum, this is from the article, Rod Meldrum, author of Prophecies and Promises, the Book of Mormon in the United States of America, is particularly sure of this connection. On March 20th, once again, this would have been 2020, right after the, the horn dropping, on March 20th, he is quoted as saying, and so it begins. First Moroni's trumpet is removed from the Salt Lake City Temple, heralding the end of the preaching of the gospel to the world and the beginning of woes. Two days later, this. By which he means the church saying we're calling our missionaries home. Mm. Beginning of woes. Yep, that's right there. So he is uh, apparently promoting this as well. So I have a few conclusions, but the reason this is important is because one million views. There are lots and lots of Mormons, courtesy of these people who are promoting it up to and including Rod Meldrum, and I say that in terms of his popularity, who are buying into this and people who really believe it and take it really seriously are really picking up their bags and moving. And some of them are taking their children, even maybe against their will, out of the uh, the strike zone, and they're heading up to the place where the people are going to be gathering with their white tents, and they're going to be building their community, and they're going to be waiting for the second coming, which is going to come probably on April 8th. But if it doesn't come on April 8th, it's certainly got to happen before 1933. And I say April 8th of 2024 for those watching from the future next year. And there will be those of you who are watching from the future, because guess what? Jesus isn't going to come back on that day. But there are many people who believe that he will and hopefully are taking the time to go through a lot of these building blocks of why it is they think so will help the audience understand why it is people are believing this and why it is that it's coming to such a boil. And we're having these strange stories about people leaving because they do believe this. And also, finally, hopefully giving us some talking points that we can talk to our friends who believe this and help them understand as best we're able or as best as they're able to receive it, that the scriptures that they're predicating these beliefs on don't necessarily predicate the beliefs that they're attributing to them. All right, sweet. I've got a few phone calls in the call bank if we want to take those. Absolutely. Sweet. Maybe we'll have a believer call in. That would be nice. One who believes that this is going to happen uh, very shortly. So let's let's find out. I think we've got a Tim. Tim, are you there? Ooh, let me try one more thing here and see if this works. Tim, are you there? I think you put the wrong person on. 
Uh, well, it said Tim, but go ahead. What's the name? Um, my name is M. Gunter. I'm your undergraduate at the University of Virginia. Sweet. Go ahead. You're on Mormonism Live. Hi. Yeah. I before I went, so I'm a third year major in apology here at UVA, and as I approach my fourth year, I've been starting to think a lot about what I do my undergraduate thesis on, and ironically, I started getting really Mormonism a couple years ago. I realized very recently it would be very applicable, but before I get into research, I did just want to briefly mention that I was one of the few non-Mormons where I grew up in, in Bina Vista, Virginia, which y'all may recognize as being home to Southern New University, which is basically just BYU in the middle of mountains. Yeah, BYU Junior. But anyway, yeah, I don't miss that place. But it's got a new president, Bonnie Corden. I haven't quite figured out exactly what research question I'm going to pursue. Um, but the exceedingly topical nature of the surge and end beliefs that y'all were discussing using is definitely me towards a project that would help us understand the patterns and trends surrounding these particular my research is particularly um, involved with like anthropology. So you're looking at um, like healthcare. But also, in this case, I'm really particularly interested in the relationship of uh, gender and sexuality to women and like these experiences and time stuff. Like, it, I don't know, it's just, I just keep coming back to the question about where the, about, you know, where that pattern comes exactly. I will tell you, honestly, there was this periodic clicking in your call that made it difficult to follow, and I apologize. I understood that you asked a question. I understood that you were talking about attending uh, the University of Virginia. You're in your third year. You're um, an anthropology major, and you're looking at doing your uh, your dissertation or, or whatever that major project was. And um, then I kind of lost the thread. Maven, did you follow it any better? So no, so I heard you asking about a pattern and talking about women at play at this, but I didn't hear what pattern it is you're talking talking about. Can you say that again and maybe say it slower just so it can get through the clicks that are coming through? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, live in a military airfield, actually, but the, I'm so the what pattern? pattern? What's the pattern? Experiences. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. But, so I'm really interested in like the relationship with men insofar as it pertains to these like near-death experience, like the Blaze Thibodeau. Like why is it so often that we're seeing that it becomes women that end up as followers of men and, you know, like the Lori Vallow, the, the Lori Vallow station and then like the Blaze Thibodeau. Like I'm just, I really want to try to figure out and understand where that relationship is from. Like, what is the part of like the submissive nature of itself to the like to the paternal figure? Like, I don't know. That's one thing I've been, you know, very interested in lately. Why, why women seem to be the direct followers of these movements? 
but men are too. So I don't, yeah, I don't know if there actually is a pattern because I feel like it's just a lot of members believe it. And a lot of those members are men, like the guy doing this whole video who put all this stuff together. And then a lot of believers are women as well. So I'm not, I guess I'm not seeing what's really a, a, a pattern here. I, I think it makes sense that there would be both men and women that follow this. So like with Spring Thibodeau, a, a lot of this came from, I think the her brother-in-law except there was there was also another man there who was hugely into this and i think it might have even started with him that kind of spread to spring in her family so yeah so i i think i'm just seeing what i would naturally expect is that some that people are going to believe this mormons are going to believe this and some of them will be men and some of them will be women that's just my view oh absolutely sorry i should have been more clear i'm going to say i'm interested particularly in of women within this movement so looking at it like in the abstract of why of like the certain sorry it's, it's really late here but a lot of anthropology looks at like the role of women in movements so that's kind of what I'm wanting to get at possibly is like the women in this movement if that sounds yeah I think oh, like what role they play exactly it it does occur to me that we often talk about in Mormonism that the way a woman gets some notoriety in a patriarchy is by upholding the patriarchy, even if she is squashing other women, right? Even if she is running over the sort of free expression of other women in that patriarchy. And I imagine in some ways this is sort of similar in that for a woman to be part of these movements, if if they're sort of the right-hand man of the person leading it, it gives them a sense of importance or value in spite of the fact that maybe it, you and I would go like, this seems crazy. How does anybody fall for it? And I think people's motivations can be different, but often in male-led uh, groups or um, systems, Women tend, uh, the women who tend to be sort of uh, recognized are the ones who are willing to sort of go along with whatever it is that the guy is doing. And and, I, and again, we're talking about systems where men are at the forefront. And as you point out, Maven, whether it's these things, the Vallow story, often almost almost all of them essentially involves a male at the actual head of the ideology and then women sort of playing a supportive role, but you can see why women would do that. Right. So it almost makes you think that like, it's the women being so complicit in the supportive role have something to do with the fact that, you know, in the culture, like women don't have a lot of power and it's, you know, really grasping to try to get whatever power you can. Right. I would suggest that there might be some evidence for, women's role in these radical breakoff movements in some instances perhaps being greater than they would have had within the orthodox church and here i'm thinking believe it or not of michelle stone and uh who's that other um she's an author and i'm forgetting her name uh the one who thought you were in a conspiracy to you know whitney horning whitney, whitney horning right there are several women who have podcasts like that and I think that there are some instances of these, and I'm just calling them radical offshoots of Mormonism, um, where they apparently enjoy a greater degree of having their voice known. 
I would agree. Yeah, and, and I, I just want to about. Go ahead, Em. Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking about, you know, how it might be interesting, like, observe this from, like, a much more historical perspective, because I actually just found out really recently that UVA, um, we actually have a Mormon, the apparently was the largest, like, Mormon library collection outside of Salt Lake City, thanks to um, the tradition of Gregory Prince. It, apparently, there's over 10,000 books and volumes, many of which are actually like unpublished and not digitized. So that's one thing I was like considering looking at, like the his if I can, if they'll let me go into that. <laughs> well, I got a feeling that you're going to have less trouble getting into the restricted section of the University of Virginia than you would of the church archives. Amen. Which is why I'm sure Gregory Prince made sure that that's where his collection went. Yeah. It's like Leonard Arrington made sure that the University of Utah got his papers and not BYU. Right. Thanks for the call, caller. And then yep. I just wanted to jump on the end of that. There, There's a bunch of comments asking about her saying that this was off topic. It wasn't off topic. It was on topic. And out of like past callers we've had, that have really, really been off topic. I'm really surprised at the number of people who have said that this was off topic. And they, you know, just because it's about women in the last days, this is still about the apocalypse and last days. So I just thought that was kind of weird that a lot of you guys did that. But anyway. By the way, did you guys notice James Raphael hasn't called us back since we figured out his MO? Mm. Yeah, just anyway. Yeah. There's that. And okay. I, go ahead. No, no, that's it. I think I, I had another thought, but I, I lost it. We can go to the next. Okay, I think it might be a Joe. And by the way, if I get your name wrong, callers, it's because we have a uh, a screening computerized screening system that sort of tries to uh, be a right, you know, dictate your name down, whatever you tell the system, and sometimes it gets it wrong. But uh, Joe, is that is that the name? Yep, yeah, it's Joe. Great, Joe, you're on Mormonism. So Live. first of all, before I get to the, oh, sorry about that. Uh, before I get to the prophecy stuff. I want to know if we're going to have Mormonism Live hosted at World Party on April 8th, or at least, you know, a special episode or something celebrating the end of the world. It is interesting. It's two days. We, I was telling RFM this. It's two days after Jesus' birthday. Not that there's any connection there. RFM said that there really wasn't anything in any of these thoughts or ideas where somebody tried to connect it to the April 6th birthday of Jesus. But two days after his birthday, he comes again and um rfm what do you think should we have a should we have a jesus comes back uh party celebration it sounds like a great idea i mean jesus is older even than president nelson at this point yeah he, is he going to come right out of the sky and just uh all the angels behind him and descend? Yes, he'll be carrying he'll be carrying moroni's horn in one hand and a big black sharpie in the other yeah <laughs> okay We'll think about it, caller. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll toss it around we'll, behind the scenes and see if we have a, a Jesus return party. Building in downtown Los Angeles in uh, Independence Day. There you go. So this this episode, you know, there's always loopholes in these prophecies. I mean, if you think of the Mayan calendar, I I had coworkers that were dead set on that thing ending the world. And, 2012, um, right? and then when it didn't happen, yeah, to, uh, December 12, 2012, and when it didn't happen, 
that's when the loopholes came in. You know, that's when, oh, well, we may be reading it wrong, so we may be off by one to three years, and, you know, look where we are today. And then and Bill was talking about the uh, patriarchal blessing. We do that. I've, I've heard some crazy patriarchal blessings. One of them, my best friend in, in high school, he got a patriarchal blessing saying, you will not go on a mission. You will be recruited to the war to fight in God's army. And it went into a lot of detail about all of this fighting he's going to do and everything. Well, he really wanted to go on a mission. So when he turned 19, and I thought it, I thought it was funny, I was going on a mission at the same time, and I didn't get some call to an army, or maybe I wasn't good enough. You know, I'll have to go to therapy over that. But anyways, um, we, uh, so he, he went on a mission. And about three months, he, he had to go to language. About three months in, um, he kind of lost his mind and hopped the fence at the NPC and came home. And he couldn't go back out because of mental anguish. And if you ask him, he says that he feels that the Lord could not fulfill a prophecy because he chose the wrong decision to go on a mission. And so he was cursed with mental anxiety. And so there's always these prophecies that are given to us and when we don't follow them or they don't happen we always find loopholes and in you know classic when you blame yourself right it's always the member's fault as to why something does or doesn't happen so yeah. that's all i'd say thank you my friend great call that's a great example yes thank you by the way it strikes me that the clicking is in the phone system bill yeah and i don't know there's nothing i can do about it in this moment we can hang up and start over but uh unfortunately we'll just have to deal with it for one more call I, it happened one time before in a previous episode mm -hmm. uh, but generally was that the time right before jesus came because i think this could be a sign yeah um there's something in the book of revelation that talks about an annoying clicking on the call-in system yeah there, there has to be some way we can uh, <laughs> create a prophecy yeah. It does strike me. We, you know, we could probably create videos sharing false evidence of biblical locations or, or evidence that Christ existed as a real, you know, and uh, here's the nail. This is the very nail, you know, cause there are these kinds of relics that exist with the leaf, with and the page folded probably, down. This is the very probably, nail with the leaf folded down. We could probably get millions of views if we just uh, told people what they wanted to hear. No, I just thought I should just do a video that says RFM died and went to heaven and he's going to tell you about it. Yeah. Now you come on and say you had a near death experience and, you know, the heaven's gate cult that was waiting for the aliens to pick them up was true. And whatever it is, pick whatever thing you want that's cool and fascinating and testify that it's true and get millions of views. The key is to say what people want to hear, by the way. That I've decided. That is the secret. All right. Yes. This is the last caller. Hopefully the clicking isn't too bad. Uh, is this Ted? Go ahead, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. So the following the last two calls, they were um, more in-depth what it was going to be, but I wanted to call in because this was actually one of the um, one of the things that drew me to Mormonism. So what Maven said that it was her dad, and she was about eight years old, that told her that the second coming was going to come within her time. And for me, it was, uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, and it was my priest that said um, the second coming was come, and he thought it was within his lifetime. So, but investigating uh, Mormonism, 
it was one of the things I said, oh, not like they're, um, you know, Christian and they believe the same thing. But, um, but yeah, but now I'm, I'm kind of an unapologetic, like, I mean, I love Mormon people. Like if I find out somebody's Mormon, um, I love them, but I do not like what the church has been doing and stuff. But anyways, that was, um, that was pretty much my gist. It was, it was just a trigger and it was just funny that, that, um, that was one of the things that drew me to Mormonism, but yeah. Excellent. What was it that drew you to Mormonism that you liked the people? It was, well, oh, well, yeah, I've always liked the people. That's true. But uh, it was, um, it was just a fact. It was just another bridge that when, you know, they identify themselves as a, a a Christian church. I'm like, yeah, that, that's right. Cause they believe he's coming and this and that. But, but yeah, I grew up, um, I grew up about an hour from, um, Sharon, Vermont, where Joseph Smith was born. And, um, um, I had one up there and, and, you know, I had investigated the church a little bit, but I went up there and, um, I was, I was surprised that they didn't have like, you know, I, I expected to see a wall like Joseph Smith tithes and stuff all on the wall, but like they have it like um, it's just his little family, his wife and his kids. And I was asking all kinds of questions, and the uh, the uh, missionary worker said, "Just go watch the movie." Like I don't know if you guys have seen the Joseph Smith movie, but I watched the movie, and um, um, I come out and he goes, well, what'd you think? And I said, well, anybody would like that guy. But they kept saying like that Joseph Smith kept being prosecuted and this and that and moving from, um, you know, Kirkland to Ohio and um, um, Missouri. I, I said that they, they, they label it like they didn't know why he was moving. So they, they knew like, you know, like he created a, a bank that failed. He was, um, um, um you know, all the polygamy stuff. I said, you know, they, we know all that stuff. So anyways, I, that was, then I, it was just at this point that got me into the church. But then when I started investigating it, I, um, I said, no, this isn't true. Then you found out what yeah, Paul Harvey calls the rest of the story. Oh, you know. <laughs> I love Paul Harvey. Oh, everybody loves Paul Harvey. But see, um, but that that one movie, like, showed me. So I, I, I and I, I went to the church for a few years. I was never baptized. Um, that just proves I'm a critical thinker, though. And you know, compared to that, just, you were fooled for over a decade, RFM. So that proves I'm more of a critical thinker than you, and that's why I'm a DC person. You know, I think it's also in the Book of Revelation that Ted is a better critical thinker than RFM. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. But, but yeah, that's all I had to add. So, so following those last two callers that were more in depth, but um, I just had to call in because this was one of the triggers, you know, that it caused me to really look at the at the church. But there's, um, there's a lot of triggers that do that, Ted. But yeah, thank you. It's true. Thanks yeah. for calling, Ted. It, it Happy struck, Thanksgiving. It strikes me, RFM, that the disciples and apostles in Jesus's day also thought Jesus was coming back in their day as well. Um, well, yeah. Well, after he died, they did. Yeah. 
In other he was words, supposed to do all that stuff the first time, and then he didn't, and he dies, which he's not supposed to do. So it's time for round two. Jesus is coming back really soon to do all the stuff he was supposed to do the first time, but didn't get around to before he got crucified. This generation shall not pass away. Right. And, you know, Paul, somebody referenced the New Testament. They were referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is against getting married because Jesus is coming back so dang soon that you need to not be encumbered with uh, being married because you need to give yourself wholly to the work of the missionary work because Jesus is coming back now, tomorrow, right? And then that ends up being postponed indefinitely. Always. But it's always tomorrow. Always. See, the sun will come out tomorrow. That's S-O-N, sun. A lot of people don't know that about the musical. Annie. The sun will come back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun, S-O-N. Okay, so now we understand the secret meaning of the musical Annie. You can go right in there with the book of Revelation and Daniel. Sense. Okay, so that's what I've got today. You want to give the closing out, and uh, if you want to introduce and talk about next week, that'd be great too. But up to you. Uh, the only no, no, I'll let you close out the show. The only thing I wanted, uh, and I don't even remember what I was going to say now, so we can just close out the show. I'm good. Then I was successful. I knocked no. it right out of your head. I just, I'm just glad when I see you do that because it happens to me so often where I have an idea and all of a sudden it's gone. But this idea is not gone. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I want to thank everybody who watches the show, who supports us in any way, who shares it, who makes comments, who enjoys the, the live chat, which is where all the action is, as everybody in the live chat knows. So thank you so much for everything. We're coming up on three years doing Mormonism Live here in a couple of weeks, and we'll have a celebration for that. But uh, just want to wish everybody a Thanksgiving and let you know that Bill, Maven, and I all are giving Thanksgiving for you as we're sitting around the table tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. See you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel.